Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 91, the final episode of 2022 of the Fate to Black podcast. I am a Mon woman. I'm Clarice Lockery. And I'm Hannah Flint. This week, we're not in Kansas anymore. Again. Because after 13 <laughs> long years, we return to Pandora with Avatar The Way of Water while I talk to Colonel Miles College himself, Stephen Lang. Uh, we lace up with historical drama corsage. We find the donut hole in the donut holes with Ryan Johnson's glass onion, colon, a knives out mystery, and get existential about Bardo, false chronicle of a handful of truths, while Hannah talks to the man behind it all, the one, the only, Alejandro. Gonzalez in the retail. And since this is our last episode of the year, we're going to take some time to recharge, to re energize, to re insert something here. We'll be recalibrate. Our- beep boop, beep boop, beep boop. <laughs> recalibrate. Also, That's a good one. Rewind. <laughs> yes. Oh, I like what you did there. I like what you did there, Hannah. Because we will be rewinding as we deliver our official Fate to Black 2022 wrapped. As our hot take, we will be, we'll be revisiting, that's another V, um, the very best moments on film this year. It's a jam-packed episode, people. But before we get into all of that, I have a question for you, my Fate to Black sisters. Henry Cavill is no longer playing Superman. How do we feel about this news after just weeks ago, it felt like he was coming back as Superman? Clarice, I'm going to start with you. Uh, I don't. Um, <laughs> this doesn't affect me at all <laughs> in any way. Um, I mean, yeah, it's interesting that he dropped out of The Witcher um, weeks before this happened. <laughs> I totally forgot about that. Oh my god! Just... Do you think they might actually just like no, get rid they, of Luke they... Hemsworth? And they've, get, they've come out back. in like the last couple of days and said that Henry Cavill will not be returning to The Witcher because he's got um, Enola Holmes is... 3. <laughs> Very <laughs> important. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> that's what I need because Himesh Patel getting announced as Watson. That was like my favorite moment yeah. of it. So. Yeah. <laughs> no, they, they've just announced that Henry Cavill is going to be making a Warhammer film. That, um, like, honestly, that that's his dream. That's his passion project. Exactly. Exactly yeah. right. Um, yeah. I do think it's a shame that we're not going to see him get to take another crack at it because I do think with a good script, he could have been a very good Superman. Unfortunately, the screenplay was just never there for them. They got close in some ways with Man of Steel, but when you have Superman kill, that goes away from the core of the character in the way that I, as a Superman DC fan, I just can't accept. And that was like the first outing for him it's hard to come back from that even though they tried with certain elements in other films it just is hard to come back after making a choice like that um but yeah as as you said uh, last week kind of gun is firing off some shots and i feel like even though this the short term of not getting to see having Cavill and superman again is going to be a bit of a bummer the long term of the franchise reset which is the direction that they may it seems that they are heading toward and um, it's probably going to be good in the long run because when I look at DC right now on, on film, it's just messy. A whole big mess. Um, and streamlining that could, could pay off dividends. My issue, what I think about it, is that I realise that Henry Cavill's um, Superman was a bit sourceless. 
Like, I know he's a kind of like, I know he's a, you know, Boy Scout. But I do think he's so stony in a way as Superman. Mm -hmm. Like when Mm -hmm. I think about Christopher Reeve um, and just just how playful it was at that time, there's that campiness to it, which I thought was really great. So I'm actually, I don't really, I'm not really fussed about Henry Cavill not coming back as Superman. Um, Yeah, I think it's, you know, as we, I think it's time to like, draw a line in the sand for uh, the Snyder thing to get it over and done with. I also think it's funny that, like, another reason to dislike Black Adam. <laughs> it's like, I kind of blame that also for, like, his, yeah. like, super, Superman demise. Because did you also see, and I suppose with no comment, but I, I did find it hilarious. Actually, like, a friend of mine, a critic, um, Swara, he um he he does the Middle Geeks podcast and he was the one who yeah. sent me this the thing that Black uh actually uh this deadline report that Black Adam was doing really financially well was actually <laughs> yeah. no, it's not. And the rock tweeted out and I was like, mm, yeah, so yeah. this film is a massive just... failure in all parts and also it kind of tried <laughs> to relaunch Superman and then it didn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just it's funny to me in that the rock has been saying for years now the hierarchy of power in the DC universe is about to change. And it did, but not in the way that he intended. And because it did... That's so true! <laughs> it's, now, it's just wild. Good it's like, it's but, like, it's like, you know that, you know that scene in The Matrix? Where it's like, not like this. That's The Rock. <laughs> it's like, the higher, but not like this. <laughs> this is not how I wanted to go. But you know yeah. what? I do think maybe that, maybe The Rock needs a little healthy dose of hubris. Like, kind of, on that because I do feel like he really did make a big mountain out of like him doing this thing bigged up and all that even though he shouldn't play the role and I just I don't know I don't really I don't know if karma plays a part in these type of things but there's a bit of like karmic work going on there I think so yeah maybe we'll actually get uh, a black Adam who has hair (laughs) Um, but yeah I I don't know I think the DC stuff I just think it's all bad management, really. Yeah. It's been ever yeah. since, you know, you think include Ray Fisher, all the situation, Ruby Rose, like mm-hmm. the way that teams handle it. And I can only hope like James Gunn and Peter Saffron actually just gets their things in order. So no, not just yeah. that they create better, but they make it a better working environment for people on those films because there have been too many horror stories from the last, what, 15 years. Um mm-hmm. Of, of, of that studio making superhero movies. So, you yeah. know, you just want to have it have a better creative working environment, really. Been a bit hostile. Yeah. There's going to be more stuff like this, I think, in the, in the coming months. But after the old regime is fully sort of out or more, you know, out than it currently is, then I believe we'll start to see the, the chaos be minimized. But enough about that. Uh, it is nine days as we record this until Christmas. Are we all set? Are the presents all bought? Is the Christmas tree down? Is it decorated? Talk to me. Presents bought. <laughs> Done. Sorted. Presents sorted. Done. Um, don't have a okay. Christmas tree, so I didn't need to do that part. I've had my tacky <laughs> Christmas go. tree up a couple of weeks ago. I love it. It's a little orange one. And it's great because people <laughs> like posting things from like my TV and then my little Christmas trees in the side of it. You know, festive. 
festive film use. Um, I don't think my parents listen to this podcast, so I can tell you. What? <laughs> I know. Caroline really? Flint. Well, let's see. If I get a message, if, if I suddenly, if I repost this on the post this on Sunday, and in the next week my mom goes, Hannah, we do listen to your podcast. <laughs> they will know. There we go. This will be the barometer. I don't think my dad test. knows this podcast exists. So. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Is your, does your mum listen to your po- the podcast? I don't think she does, you know. I love how we're like, I love how he's like, wow. It's like, check your own household. <laughs> but anyway, I've decided, I'm, ob- I- I'm obsessed with Crocs. Like, I've got like three pairs now and I've decided that I'm going to make my parents also Croc wearers. So that's what they're going for Christmas. <laughs> so I'm that's like, what they're getting for Christmas this year. <laughs> These ones, I've got, I've been, I eat, I'm sure, for the purpose of uh, audio, I'm showing uh, my fellow uh, podcasters, my Crocs that have a fleecy lining. So they're perfect they for the winter months. <laughs> and they are actually really comfy. So Croc supremacy in 2023. I was going to buy Crocs for somebody. And then I was told that they already owned two pairs and they did not want or need any more Crocs. So. <laughs> <laughs> I got them something else instead. Please, I, I, I do not own a pair of Crocs, just in case you wanted to know that information. Do you want some Crocs? I'll buy you some Crocs. They've got Pokemon Crocs. I mean, if, I thought yeah, they do. If, very cool. <laughs> that's so kind of you to, to think that. I mean, I, I don't know how you came up with that suggestion, but thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> but yes, um, looking forward to the Christmas break. It's been, in many ways, a fun year. Um it's our first full year of doing Fate to Black because we started last year in March. This mm-hmm. has been our first full year of doing Fate to Black. We, of course, did our live podcast episode, first one of many. That was super fun. And also, I released my book this year, guys, which some are saying, the streets are saying, it's the perfect Christmas <laughs> gift for the strong female character in your life or even the strong male character because I feel like male characters could also learn a thing or two about strong female characters. So if you're still wondering what to get the film lover in your life, maybe pop online or pop in store and pick up a copy of Strong Female Character by me, <laughs> Hannah Flint. It's a book, it's a, what, what, what voice was that? What, what are we labelling that there? That was my, is that my audiobook voice? Also, audiobook <laughs> If you enjoy my dulcet tones, but a little bit slower and a bit sultrier, then get my audio audiobook on Audible, which has got two five-star ratings. So, there we go. I mean, the, the reviews have it. Those two reviews. <laughs> <laughs> From me and Grace, two five-star ratings. There you go. It wasn't you. You haven't listened to my audiobook. Don't take this away from me, Amon. <laughs> this is true. But on the back of that promo, I mean, how could I not listen to the audiobook right away? After, of course, we finish doing this podcast and after you finish listening to this podcast, which we should probably get on with recording. And we are going to start with Avatar The Way of Water. I know you think I'm crazy. But I feel her. I hear her heartbeat. She's so close. So what does her heartbeat sound like? Mighty. 
Virus! <laughs> the greatest <laughs> SNL skit of all time. Thank you, Ryan Gosling. Thank you Can so I much. Can I just say, by the time this podcast goes out, the Barbie trailer would be in the world. We're Ooh. gonna. We're, this is. This is gonna be changed times for society. <laughs> <laughs> Love. Oh, oh man. I feel like we need to record a whole other podcast for when that drops. But anyway, oh uh, Avatar: The Way of Water <laughs> is set more than a decade after the events of the first film, and it begins to tell the story of the Sully family. That's Jake, Natiri, and their kids, and the trouble that follows them and the lengths that they go to to keep each other safe, the battles they fight to stay alive, and the tragedies that they endure. This is directed by James Cameron and produced by James Cameron and John Landau, and the film stars Zoe Saldana, Sam Worthington, Sigourney Weaver, Stephen Lang, Cliff Curtis, Joel David Moore, CCH Pounder, Edie Falco, Jermaine Clement, and Kate Winslet. I like that is what how we call. French she said Clement. <laughs> <laughs> like I've been like listening to you that. for enough time, Clues. I gotta, I gotta take some of that and put it into my speech as well. Something. I didn't know he was in this movie, and I did a full triple take. <laughs> <laughs> we will talk about that more in just a few minutes. But first, we have an interview with the great Stephen Lang. For me, he was the MVP of the first movie. Uh, I really liked that character. A really fun bad guy. Very charismatic. Great speeches, great one-liners, great badassery, all of it. So it was a treat uh, for me to spend 15 minutes with him when he was in London. He was in town, uh, was it now, a couple of weeks ago as Avatar was having its world premiere in the UK. And I got to talk with him about returning as Quaritch, which, you know, after the end of the first movie, people probably weren't thinking that that was going to happen, but it's happened. Because he died. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So it was cool to talk about that. We talked a little bit about missing out on cable in the MCU. We talked a little bit about returning as the blind man in Don't Breathe 3, which is coming up. So yeah, he was really, really fun. I think I was his last interview of the day, but you would not know it. He's a very, very good interviewee. And I appreciated that. And I hope that you appreciate this chat between me and Stephen Lane. Enjoy. Uh, welcome to the Faith of Black podcast. Stephen Lang, how are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. <laughs> Good stuff. It's so good to see you. Congratulations on the movie. I've really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed your performance. Before we talk about The Way of Water, I want to rewind for a second to the first Avatar, a movie that I think did pretty okay in the large scheme of things. What are your memories of the days and weeks after that movie was released and became just this massive hit? It was uh, very... Uh it was gratifying and cool and surprising because I always, you know, I think it, when it opened, it did well, mm -hmm. but there was no, I didn't know that it was going to do exactly what it did. And then mm -hmm. it seemed to gather steam and just kind of keep rolling along like this great boulder that mm -hmm. kept growing. And, um, and it, was, it was fantastic uh, to mm -hmm. watch and be a part of. It was kind of a, uh, it was kind of a surprising phenomena yeah. in, in a way and it really gave one pause and made <laughs> one kind of wonder why this was happening yeah yeah Quaritch for me and this is not just me but he is my MVP of the first movie and my MVP of this movie I just love 
his badassery, his demeanor, but also his dialogue. So I'm wondering, when you get recognized in public, are people quoting dialogue at you? <laughs> and what is the dialogue that they're quoting at you? Oh, so. gosh. <laughs> you know, I should be better at remembering this than I am right now. I sort of, it's not that I move on. It's just that I have other mm. things, and I, I, and, I, mm. and I forget sometimes, you mm. know, what the dialogue is. Uh, in mm. this movie, I think there's, some, there's a few memorable oh, lines, yeah. probably. <laughs> and uh, they'll be... They'll be I hope they'll, people will be coming back to me and, and quoting them, you know. I tend to roll my eyes and go cross-eyed when people start, you know, <laughs> quoting my own lines to me, to be, to be perfectly frank about it. But I'm thrilled when they do that they do. You know? I'm just imagining you walking into some place and put somebody going, you're not in Kansas anymore. Well, that one, of course, you know. I'm a little embarrassed about that line, of course, because it's not an original line. That line don't belong to me. That one belongs to Judy Garland, you know. Yeah. Now, Judy Garland and I, we're cut from the same cloth. We're very much, you know, you know, very much the same sort of yeah. actor, except she's she's dead and she could sing. Yeah. Well, Stephen Lang can't sing? I'm, I'm not convinced. You could do anything for me. Um, I read that even though, yes, you were told that you'd be back for the sequel, you mm -hmm. didn't initially believe it until you got that call. So when you got that call saying that you'd be back, what was your reaction to that and then to find out what you'd be doing? <laughs> I was really kind of, I was pretty thrilled. You know, mm -hmm. look, when I was told I would be back initially, it was before we'd even finished the first, so we didn't even know that there would be a sequel, mm -hmm. right? So I, did, I didn't want to get too excited about about it at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, when we did know there would be a sequel and I, and I would be back, I was, of course, really, uh, I was just thrilled to be on the team, mm -hmm. frankly, because, you know, I thought I was dead. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and then uh, when I saw, when Jim explained to me uh, the uh, extent uh, to which I would be uh, involved in the uh, narrative, mm -hmm. uh, I was kind of blown away yeah. because uh, I, I thought, well, maybe he's going to be a flashback character mm -hmm. or something, you know, yeah. or maybe he'll be kind of an auxiliary or on the tangential or something, but no, 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 he's in the thick of it, you yeah. know, and, uh, and you know, it's, it, it's just so gratifying to mm -hmm. me. Yeah. Making the first film, were you at all jealous of the performance capture that other actors got to do? That's an excellent question because I, I'm not sure jealous is the right word, and I would say no because I had my hands full. Mm. I was playing my own part, and there was no doubt in my mind. When I read the script, I remember <laughs> saying, oh, gee, <laughs> this is by far the best part role in this film. Mm -hmm. Now, the fact that i that's what I thought is probably because I'm right for the role, you yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> uh, um, but uh, so I never, it never bothered me. But then on reflection, it was, if I had to say, well, what's the defining process mm. of the Avatar world? One would really have to say it is uh, performance capture. Mm -hmm. And I remember looking at the, you probably remember when they would do the photograph of Zoe uh, in the performance capture yeah. rig going mm -hmm. like that and next to her would be Natiri and mm -hmm. you realize it's the same thing. Yeah. It really does capture, it explicitly captures the performance. Mm -hmm. um, so I was very yeah. pleased that I got, got to do that mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. yeah. So what was that first day in the performance capture like and how quick 
it's the learning curve that you have to sort of adapt in terms of the, using all the new equipment. The first day I was with, when I woke up, in mm -hmm. my first scene, it was the first scene we shot in the movie as oh, well. Wow. It was the first day one of shooting on Avatar mm. uh, Way of Water. Mm. And I came out swinging. That's mm. what I was supposed yeah. to do. We had carefully choreographed the role. Mm. As soon as he said action, everything went to hell. <laughs> and, and all hell broke loose. And, and of course, uh, uh, I came, when it was done, uh, I was like bleeding from the head because I hit a lamp, not because anybody got hit or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. It was all, you know, it's controlled. Everything. <laughs> but I remember Jim was actually, he was quite thrilled that we drew blood on the very first <laughs> shot in the movie. But we had, of course, do it again mm. because you got, you know, on the rig, you've got the mm. face cam and that thing can be delicate. And of course, in the course of the, the yeah. fighting, it kind of went yeah. askew and everything, but that was very common. That happened okay. all the time anyway. Can so that say, was the first shot. That is very Quaritch-like because the character himself, the first day he's on Pandora, gets yeah. that scar. Exactly. So the first day that you're on the way of water, you get that scar. You probably put it all in so There's many ways. <laughs> a lot of poetic justice going on here. I was wondering, and the, the, the major difference with this film compared to the other film is that you're doing a lot of acting underwater. Mm -hmm. And as an actor, What's the challenge and the excitement in doing that? Because there's a lot of that sort of stuff. It looks absolutely incredible mm -hmm. in this film. It's just tough. I mean, acting mm -hmm. underwater is, is tough, but you realize that you're all on equal footing, as it were, because every, it's tough on everybody. Yeah. And uh, you just do the best. You, you work in, um, in, the, in the increments that you can. You, mm -hmm. we, we trained hard. We learned uh, to do the, the breath hold so that we actually could sustain you know, fairly long takes yeah. underwater, and um, and 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 we just you just go at it the best you can. But mm. you know, look, I've acted on horseback, mm. and that can be tough too. You know, okay. I, you know, I've acted while I'm riding motorcycles, and that can mm. be tough too. Acting always has its challenges, but if you actually have a task to mm. perform, it actually makes the acting that much simpler because you mm. don't really worry so much about you know what yeah. I'm feeling or what I'm saying or any mm -hmm. of that kind of stuff you really want to get get that particular job mm. done it seems to me and it can be actually work to your advantage yeah. as well um, I've heard that Kate Winslet could hold a breath for seven minutes and 14 seconds completely wild mm -hmm. What was your time? Did you have a time and how long did you hold your Yeah, breath? I think yeah. that a static hold, which is mm. to say when I'm not acting, mm. I think I could probably be to, be to between five and six minutes. Four <laughs> minutes is, four, four plus minutes I know I can do. Mm. But I think I probably did do that at, at some point. And then when you actually are in a take, if I could do a minute or a minute plus, that mm -hmm. that's pretty good because you're expending a lot of energy mm -hmm. doing that. Now some people were were great. I think Sam got very good at it myself, probably, and of course Kate was, you know. But she plays, you know, a water Titanic. creature. She better be good at it. You know? <laughs> and she's Kate Winslet for goodness yeah, sakes. I yeah. mean, the, the woman has worked in water, you know, more than this once. Is, I mean, I'm feeling. I mean, she's she's got, she's got that Titanic experience, yeah. and not and only she a, bought well, she's worked with James. I'm feeling she bought some of that here. She and did, and she's she's just <laughs> flat out brilliant. You know, so there you go. She really is. Know. I really want to ask you this question because I find it interesting the way that these movies are getting made. They're getting made all at the same time. Avatar two, three, four, five, and I'm wondering to what extent is it useful to have knowledge of all of those movies and where your art goes, and to what extent do you have to put that out of your mind 
when you're working on Avatar 2 and not Avatar 5? Yeah, the answer is yes mm. to that because it's very cool to actually understand that there is, there is a large arc. Mm -hmm. But you don't know the future of what, you know what you're going to do tomorrow, but you don't know, there's a lot you don't know. Mm -hmm. So you really do need to put that stuff completely uh, out of your mind. And also, when you get to be my age, you forget stuff anyway, so it's not really a problem. <laughs> I can't really remember anyhow. So it's Fair enough. I'll reread that later, darling. It's all good. Um, you get to have a really interesting scene that is not afforded to many actors ever, really, uh -huh. in terms of you get to react to your character's own death <laughs> in this film. Yeah. Can you talk to me about approaching that and figuring out how you're gonna play that moment? Because that is a gift that not many people get to have. Yeah, I, I don't think we did it. We, did we didn't do a lot of figuring. We, we started shooting it, you know, because okay. I knew it was, gonna be, uh, it was gonna be fun and there were gonna be a lot of kind of angles we could go at it from, mm. it seemed to me. But um, I will, uh, I'll tell you, a, a, a funny anecdote because Please. look the scene exists on a number of levels existentially it's kind mm -hmm. of interesting and material a guy seeing his own death is just mm -hmm. kind of interesting as well mm -hmm. but the, our our prop man uh was a great prop man named brad he had mm -hmm. taken the skulls and for some reason he'd put them in the freezer so the first take when i was doing it and i had the skull yeah. in my hand and i was <laughs> like that and i'm thinking <laughs> And it was finally like, hey, Brad, what's with the skull? Dude, I can't crush the skull. He said, well, it's frozen. I said, well, that doesn't really help me at all, does it? So, so, so it was kind of useful to start with that sort of humiliation. <laughs> the entire crew is watching Big Court crush the skull and I can't do it. You know, I said, warm those damn skulls up, will you? That's amazing. Yeah, well, but you, it was you cool. Got it at the end. You got it, and it looks very, very cool. In the end, it was. In the end, it worked that good. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting what Quaritch gets up to in this film, and I wondered if you could speak a little bit to maybe whether you've had conversations about if redemption is potentially in the cards for him, um, because without sort of spoiling sort of additional, mm -hmm. additional details in the film, right. It right. feels like that might be in the works in some respects. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's. I, look, I think that the possibility of mm. redemption is just. It's a wonderful uh, element to add. Mm. You know, I mean, for those who care about Quaritch or who would uh, would like to see that, I think that's just great. That that mm. that 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 possibility enters into your mind because of what you're experiencing mm. uh, on, on the screen. I would neither confirm nor deny it. I would mm. say that, uh, that, that Pandora is, is, a, is a remarkable place. Mm. And, uh, and, and I would say anything can happen, but there are all kinds of possibilities. And, and one never knows mm. what AWA has, has, has in store mm -hmm. for you. Uh, having said that, uh, let's uh, be quite frank. Uh, you know, look, he's a man with many, many, uh, many, many sins mm. to answer for. He's got a lot yeah. to answer for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm bummed that we have not seen your cable in the MCU, which is not to say that it won't happen because the multiverse is a big place now uh -huh. and they're doing different versions right. of characters. Right. But is there any other character within Marvel or DC that you have your eye on that you would love to play? I don't. 
have my eye on anything. I find that if I ever open my mouth, this all comes out. It starts like Lang is, Lang is, uh, is campaigning for a role. You know, as far as the cable thing went, I didn't even know who cable was because I gave up comics in the late 70s before cable appeared. I'm an old Nick Fury guy, but not Nick Fury, agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I'm... I'm 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 good doing what I do. If there's a character that they want to like, you know, throw my way, you know, I'm 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 cool with that too. Okay. I think, but uh, shoot, I just think it would be it's rather kind of a, a sin for me to sit here and say anything at all about that particular universe because I'm here with Avatar today. Fair play, fair play, but I will make some calls here. <laughs> um, final question for you. Call the I spirit of Stan Lee. Final question for you. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Don't Breathe films, uh -huh. and I think you teased that a third film is coming. Yeah. What excites you most about playing that character again? He's such a difficult character, you know. Mm. I mean, it's, a, it's he's a tough, tough character to play. It's a, he's a difficult character to make people care about, and uh, and I and I just enjoy the ride. I mean, there's a certain kind of minimalist. Uh, approach that I take to playing that role mm -hmm. and um, it's just it's a dark dark place to go but I enjoy working with Fede Alvarez and uh, Rodo Sayek so so much mm -hmm. they're such good filmmakers such smart guys that uh, I'd like to see it through I want to mm -hmm. finish it off and kill the old buzzard off <laughs> okay fair enough well, I look forward to seeing that uh, and congratulations on this film again thank pleasure. you thank you so much <laughs> great awesome there's a line that Corridge has in this film. Which is, one? <laughs> uh, you can kill us, but we'll just regroup in hell. Yeah, yeah. It's just, yeah I mean, yeah, when you, you get a line like that, you're like, you oh yeah, circle that. We're just, <laughs> just regrouping hell. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Avatar, The Way of Water. We are back in Pandora again. Before we get started with our talk of the sequel, what are your thoughts on the original Avatar? Did you, is this a film that you remember seeing in 3D, that craze in 2009, all the way back when? And how excited were you to return to the world of Pandora? Hannah Flint, let's start with you. It changed my life. I am a new person after seeing <laughs> Avatar. I went into a depressed state, realizing the world was not Pandora. That's a real um, thing. <laughs> Pandora I know. depression. <laughs> I know. That didn't happen at all. <laughs> I just read about it the other day and I thought it was hilarious. Um, uh, I remember seeing it, what, 2009. So I was mm -hmm. like in my teens. Um, I remember enjoying it, loving it, having a great time with it. Yeah, I mean, it is basically Fern Gully, the last rainforest. But you can't take away, like, the kind of wow, wowzer experience of it. And I think when you think that it was, he started writing the treatment for it in 1997. And then for it to take that long to come out, you know, you can you can see where, where the work's been done to wait for the technology and to get to that point. So I had a great time with it. And I thought, you know, even though Sam Weathering is obviously able-bodied, I thought there was something really interesting about having a disabled character kind of have a new life but then I don't know I again I don't want to speak for, for disabled people because they might find it totally wrong but I thought there was something interesting about that yeah you know story-wise rehash but the character's good Zoe Saldana like oh god she was like the queen loved it I really did really enjoy it Chloe? I must have seen it in 2010 during the re-release 
Because I only remember the tail sex scene. No, the hair sex scene where they plug they plug into each other. <laughs> I remember that and I remember Michelle Rodriguez just about three quarters of the way through deciding she did not want to be in the movie anymore and like deliberately crashing her helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That is what's happened. <laughs> yeah, so I remember that and I remember getting very, very sick from the three D. Um my main honestly my main association with avatar up until this movie the sequel coming out was going to pandora the world of avatar at disney's animal kingdom <laughs> and it's really great <laughs> i love it <laughs> like i kind of get the pandora depression after going to that park because the mountains do actually float and i had the most delicious protein bowl of my life because I went with my now ex and we both had protein bowls and we took one bite and then we just looked at each other and there were like <laughs> tears forming in our eyes. Because <laughs> we were like, what the fuck? Why is this so good? Um, and you know, because so James Cameron designed that menu. <laughs> definitely James Cameron had With his, his team at Lightstorm. <laughs> Uh, and there's a ride where you like fly in a banshee and it like breathes underneath your thighs. <laughs> It's great. Wow. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So my total like understanding in relationship to Avatar is filtered through that theme park. I'm gonna be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I I remember watching it uh in cinemas. The 3D was incredible. Um and I had a good time with it. I think at that point, um, you know, 2009, my critical faculties or my more critical faculties when it comes to watching films hasn't really kicked in. I wasn't doing this at that, at that point. So it's interesting coming back to it. I watched it before watching Avatar The Way of Water um, like only like two, three weeks ago was the first time I rewatched Avatar in a very long time. And I had an okay time with it, but the white saviorness of it all <laughs> really stood out to me this time. Um, and I was looking for that watching The Way of Water, I think there's less of it that's in your face, but it's still there. And we're going to get to the visuals at some point in this conversation. I don't think we'll, we can disagree in that the visuals are insane, and we'll get into detail on that. But narratively, what are your thoughts on The Way of Water? Because for me, that's where many of the film's issues lie. I mean, my, my, my line, the line that I'm basically going with is visually mm -hmm. mirac miraculous, narratively underwhelming. I mm -hmm. think what I really liked about the first film, and you know, it's interesting with James Cameron because, you know, he's, he kind of likes to give himself credit for writing female characters, even though like one of those characters mm -hmm. he, he inherited and then made them a mother. Ellen Ripley, like it's like, hey, yeah. she's this cool thing. Let's let's give her a child to look after. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't um, get that one. Sorry, he doesn't no, get. He doesn't get Ellen. that one. He's not. And then even <laughs> Sarah really Connor, a great, amazing character, amazing character. But let's think of like, and I talk about it in my book, but like her journey is basically like, she's not the savior. The child that she carries is the savior, and that's her whole stick. And then when you come to Terminator Dark Fate, she can't even do that fucking job properly. Like, when they... Sorry, I'm doing a little segue. But when they killed John Connor in the first, like, three minutes of Terminator Dark Fate, it's like, that was your one job. <laughs> that was your one purpose in life, to protect that kid. And then it kind of, like, negates the entire Terminator thing. Because the whole thing is that Skynet ends if John Connor survives. But now you're saying, oh, actually, there's loads of survivors. Again, stupid. And, 
you know, James Cameron did not appreciate what you said recently, trying to blame your older characters, your legacy actors, for the reason why that film failed. Explain The Force Awakens, James Cameron. Anyway, sorry. Segway back in. She's back in the room. Um, and and I think Natiri was a great character, you know. She was, you know, she was that strong female character, but also, like, someone who was, like, not afraid to get upset and angry and all those other things that like you know her emotions weren't contained she still very much articulated that and she was great but of course still need the white savior right and you still need the human to be able to save the indigenous species because god forbid they can save themselves um so when it came to this one where you've got the storyline where it's basically kind of the same plot again the colonizers are back but this time instead of just you know taken the natural resources they also want to like repopulate the earth on there um it's basically revolves around actors white male actors in blue right because and then the female characters are sidelined um because it's about the dynamic between jake sully and his sons both played by white actors then you've got spider who is the human can we say what he is He's a human child who's like who's like a he's who's the like the the baby who was Quaritch's son, and then you've got this whole battle between Quaritch as well, and then every pretty much everyone on the human bits are white as well, and then any of the people of color in this film who are playing Navi, they're sidelined. Like Zoe Saldana is barely in it, and that really is like how can you say you're like may you write really great feminist characters where you sidelined them. Um, and then even the character of, I find, again, I don't want to go into spoilers, but even the character Scorny Weaver coming back as this kid, Kiri, who's the child of Grace, the kind of like immaculate conception of that situation. It kind of positions her as this like new, like chosen one. And again, she's not a native. <laughs> she's not a Navi, Navi, right? So the whole, the introduction of all these characters was bloated it felt like a lot of the stuff was quite superficial and it just did not, and it, considering it's three hours, it just felt like there were fun moments, but it's also like, okay, this could have been done in two hours. This is very baggy. <laughs> My main issue, and you touched on it there, there are long stretches where we do not see or hear about significant characters. There are 20 to 30 minute stretches in this movie where we do not see Naturi. We do not see Quaritch. And then when you check back in with it, it's like, oh yeah, she's in it. What's she up to? That shouldn't happen uh, in this film. And when they are so significant to the point, <laughs> like in the final act, they come back to the fore. But it's like, where, where have they been? We haven't. We, the, the film loses focus of its characters in a way that I didn't really like. Um, that was the main thing. And then the, the plot itself there's a difference between simple storytelling and thin storytelling. And I think this verges on thin. Um, because 20 minutes into the movie, you know exactly what Jake Sonny is going to eventually decide to do. <laughs> it doesn't happen until two hours and 20 minutes into the movie when he makes a decision that everybody knows that he's going to do. But even that, that character, even that character thing with Jake Sonny, once again, he's in the lead. I thought... Mm-hmm. Him and Natiri were supposed to be a partnership. I know he's a leader, mm-hmm. but he makes all the decisions. There's a line mm-hmm. in the film where, sorry, and Clarissa, you haven't even got in yet, but like, there's a line mm-hmm. in the film where basically um, 
there's a whole thing about dads and their sons, right? And you know, it's mm-hmm. like we're not a we're not a unit, we're a family. And it's like it's mm-hmm. so annoying. That's so cliche that she, as the woman, has to kind of like do the reminder of like, you know, that's like that, like oh, mm-hmm. you've got to treat them like your kids. It has to be like a maternal one, and she can be, but it's also like where's her decision making in this? She makes no decisions, and the decisions she does make seem seem wildly like. Um, malicious <laughs> really like kind of also like this kind of like and I hate the idea of it but it's sort of feral in a way in a way of like this kind of oh this backwards indigenous people they're just like cutthroat whereas like you know what I mean and I thought that was uh, yeah again in even the kind of Navi characters it was very patronizing I felt of the way they're treated and it's kind of like this is a science fiction world and all you're doing is basically copying pasting um, kind of like settler, colonizer, oppressed, um, indigenous relationships from like westerns and all of that, and then basically putting it on Pandora. And I just thought mm-hmm. it just left a kind of bad taste in my mouth in that way. I mean, Clarice, mm-hmm. jump in. And I, yeah, I feel like the argument with Avatar is always, oh, but it's it's yeah, it's aliens, it's sci-fi, it's not meant to have any connection to reality. But like, if you look at the designs. I mean, with the the Navi in the first movie, like it's obviously pulling from like a bunch of different indigenous references, and I, <laughs> they really doubled down in the second one because like the new Navi, I never learned their names. I'm sorry, but the Sea Navi, <laughs> uh, are basically like very Polynesian coded. I mean, they've got like the the Maori tattoos. They do something that's quite similar to the Haka and it's like if you don't want your audience to make connections to real life real world situations like you need to come up (laughs) with different references because I think then and making it feel so directly aligned all the stuff you said Hannah like really comes to the front and I really didn't like how Natiri it, it just is basically always being told to stop crying and get it together and it's like yeah what the fuck <laughs> yeah yeah but that's what i mean it's like she's now become this hysterical woman where her emotions used to be what made her kind of like passionate and in this yes. it's like actually overruling her and it's like okay that's really frustrating for me because you know you can be hysterical you can do all these things but also let her make decisions you know i don't know if you saw the um I don't know if you saw the uh, the series The English with Emily Blunt recently, but there was a really good where it's like, she cries when she kills. And I think that's like a normal human reaction to do that, but it didn't feel like mm-hmm. out of character. Whereas in this, it's like, she's just so hysterical all the time, so angry all the time. It was just like, oh, what? Like, come on. She's she's this, she's this a fierce leader. She was, has all this compassion and stuff. And I just, you know, she's the one this is what annoys me. She's the one person, in one Navi in the original, like she's the Pocahontas, right? Like in the Disney mm-hmm. version of Pocahontas, right? She's that character. <laughs> like again, the other references. But then like in this one, she's the most cold hearted. Do you know what I mean? It's weird. Mm-hmm. It just feels like this is a totally different version of it. And I, I feel like it's like suddenly she's got kids and now she's like mama bear mode. But I also feel like that's just really reductive. And then speaking of female characters like the Kate Winslet, and as you said, yeah, your review is really good, Clarice. I really liked what you talked about. Like, again, if you're going to code this as Polynesian, why have you cast Kate Winslet as like the leader with Cliff Curtis <laughs> and stuff? And so then she's doing a Polynesian, she's kind of like an yeah. accent. Yeah. 
and it's like this doesn't this doesn't feel good <laughs> all right but then even but even that even her character who is like brought in as like she's the real decision maker in this situation and then she's barely in it and then there's a, they just and it's like they've literally patting themselves on the back because they've got a show on her pregnant and like going into battle and it's like which we've seen in the trailers and that's like okay so we don't really know anything really about their her relationship the romantic thing apart from you know the best thing about the film the whales <laughs> <laughs> okay well you mentioned the whales and i feel like Clarice, I, I, I could see your face light up at just a mere mention <laughs> so go ahead what is it that you loved about the whales i laughed so much when <laughs> he goes up to the whale and the whale has subtitles <laughs> and the whale's like what's up <laughs> i'm all right how are you doing I thought it was fun. I will say I didn't like the whales here as much as I did in Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Um, they were superior whales. Because they were so yeah. cool around. These whales were just kind of like slapping things. <laughs> Which I did enjoy. But um, I actually really... But it kind of says a lot that the whale... <laughs> that this whale gets more of a storyline. <laughs> yeah. This gets more of like character development. Up. Like full, full subplot arc. And then actual mm-hmm. female characters don't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, except for except for the chosen one, on Kiri. Yeah. 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 The last thing I'll say about the plotting, um, we mentioned it earlier. Um, the white dreadlocked kid, um, who is Spider. Uh, spider. Live um, action Tarzan. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> With Spider, it was never quite clear to me where his allegiance was throughout the film. Um, and I think that could have been written better, especially given what happens in the final few minutes, uh, which, mm. again, is something that didn't really sit right with me. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I agree with that, because I think... Um, and also because, again, he's positioned as quite a central character in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And... You know, I think they were trying to play with the idea of like, you know, can you look past um, the connection people have with their dads, fathers and sons, right? It's like, oh, mm-hmm. you've got, you you feel out a bit of an outsider in your thing because you're human and everyone else is Navi. But then you have someone, you know, who this weird thing where it's like, oh, this is the person that I know. But then you also learn stuff about their background and like how the, your your adopted parents like are kind of involved with it so it complicates things i mean i'm not even sure how old is he supposed to be in the film like 16 not even that it doesn't look yeah bad. yeah i don't know um, i think that was not done very well and certainly when it came to the ending but again this is the problem with these films because we now because we know we've got f- like four sequels including mm-hmm. this one yeah. A lot of the stuff, and it's felt like it was. Let's set. Let we're gonna. Don't worry. Put a pin in it, and then we'll explore it in the next movie. And that meant that again, if it's three and a half hours, like if you can't tell a concise story and do service to every plot line, mm-hmm. then I just don't. Like he said, he didn't have any notes from the studio, and I'm just really surprised by that. I think, yeah. I, I think it needed a rewrite. Thank you for mentioning that, because in the wake of Wakanda Forever, I was reading a lot of the reviews and whatnot, and many of them were saying that that film was doing so much in terms of setting up plot lines here, there, and there, and not you know, being part of the cohesive film. 
the way of water is doing just as much, if not more, of that, and not enough people are saying it. So thank you for mentioning it. Um, but let's go to something which it I has been really interesting seeing the back, back, like the kind of discourse around this as well. I think I saw someone the other day saying, like, oh. It's so getting annoyed because people say it's visually great, but like narrative is not good. It's like that's all the Marvel mm. movie. It's like okay, but like it, that it, yeah. So yeah, people say that about the Marvel, Marvel movies. Like, <laughs> said what? the same thing. If everyone <laughs> says the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I it's give exactly the, one... the same rating yeah. I give to like ninety percent of Marvel movies, which is three stars. I guess I had fun, but eh. yeah. yeah, yeah. It was really interesting, i got to say, because I got to see it fairly early because I was doing the, the premiere for Variety. And I was sort of, you know, you know when the big film, you do a tweet reaction and then there's a lot of um, articles that come out on Hollywood Reporter, Variety, etc. Critics react to Avatar and whatnot. I was the only one, <laughs> like a sea of like 50 other reactions. Everyone's was going nuts for this film. Um, I was also the only person of colour in any article, which did stand out to me. But anyway, that's a conversation for another time. Let's talk about something which I think we can all agree on. The visuals in this film are bananas. Um, and it was cool to be handed a pair of 3D glasses again, knowing that the 3D would be good because James Cameron was the one doing it. Uh, how did you find that side of things, just on the visual level? Clarice. Yeah, you know what? What's interesting, and I, I've got a piece coming out for BBC Culture where I spoke to John Landau about uh, the VFX, and I have to say that was the most enjoyable thing for me because I'm not really a fan of 3D. I've never been a fan. I found it, I find mm-hmm. it a little bit cle- like I don't know, a bit um, what's the word, um, gimmicky. Um, uh, but with this one, I thought the way that they've done it with the 3D, the marriage of 3D car- car- cameras and also the higher frame rate in certain sequences. I actually thought was really amazing. It really took me inside this world. It really like, Mm. it felt like, you know, of course, like you've got the kind of ends of the glasses so you can kind of see out. But I just thought it was beautiful. It just looks so viscerally real. I thought um, the nuances, like what they've done with the, performance capture with the face faces is actually insanely good. And considering this Mm -hmm. film is like 90% CGI um, Mm -hmm. and the way, and I thought it was actually quite seamless between the humans and the Na'vi interacting as well. Um, mm-hmm. I, I honestly, I, I, I cannot fault CGI. I, I know some of the people are saying it's, it was too, the, the higher frame rate was too much, but actually I really liked it. I thought that was, it was honestly, I was kind of like in awe. There's a train, there's a train sequence, a uh, raid sequence. And I thought that was mm-hmm. amazing. I was like, I can't believe this is like not real. Like I was mm-hmm. like, that's when like the kid came out of me. It's like ah, the magic of cinema. Um, it's so it's cinema. so good. But even like the little, yeah. the, you know, the 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 eyelashes, the hair, the way mm-hmm. the hair flows, and then also because it's also underwater as well. Performance capture underwater has never been done before. Um, God, this is where I'm like the biggest cheerleader. But like it is insanely <laughs> good how they did that. The way that kind of with the with the ilu the ilu uh, the water be- water creatures that they ride on, just and even and even the whales the whales look so it was just pu- dynamic beautiful as I said visually miraculous. Yeah, yeah, I agree with most of that. For the most part, I had a fantastic time with the visuals. Everything you say, it's so immersive. You really do feel like it's real. The high frame rate, I did have issues with it at times because it's sort of 
especially in the final act when all the action is going down and a lot of the action, a lot of the undersea stuff looks absolutely amazing in 3D high frame rate. But there are times when it goes from double speed back to normal speed, then back to double speed, then back to normal speed in very quick succession. And your eyes have to adjust and readjust and readjust again. And that distracted me a little bit from what was going on. So at times, the high frame rate of it all did bother me. But for the most part, it was great. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think that I quite like the high frame rate for CGI because going back, the thing that always used to make me really sick about 3D and CGI is like the murkiness and the sludginess that, you know, we're always complaining about with CGI blockbusters. And I was so amazed in the, that in this movie, like everything was crystal clear like, it looks like how I look out of my eyeballs. And that was quite disconcerting. Mm. And I did start to think, oh, yeah, if they don't worry darlinged me, I would not notice <laughs> at, all. <laughs> at all. Because I I was halfway through the movie, it was like, fuck, I can't, I cannot tell what is fake and what, what is real. What is reality? genuinely i was like i was looking at like they'd be like picking up a prop and i'd be like was that real is that cgi i don't know (laughs) i'm so scared right now (laughs) so yeah like i think i think like the cultural legacy of of both these avatar movies to me is like because there's that big conversation of oh avatar's only memorable for being unmemorable which is something griffin newman said um and I, I, I do disagree, because I think even though people are not going to conventions dressed up as Na'vi, um, it's it's really, really changed the stakes in terms of what we expect from CGI, from spectacle, what spectacle means in Hollywood today. Uh, and I think, you know, the way, of, the way of water coming out and everyone having seen that, it's like, everybody who's next better step the fuck up, because like... I don't want to see any more blurry shit. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. I want to know what everything and everyone is doing at any point in an action scene. Don't. I don't want to be like, oh, pff, could be anybody. I want to see everything. I see you, movie. <laughs> <laughs> you heard the lady Hollywood. Fix up. Look sharp. In all sense of the phrase. Um, Woo! <laughs> that was that was a Disney Rascal reference on the Paperback Podcast. Um, and now this time, for our screen, stream, or skip recommendations on Avatar The Way of Water. Clarice Lockway. I mean, yeah, the screen. <laughs> but you know what? <laughs> I'm not going to see it again, because it's too fucking mm. long. And I will not let James Cameron get me. Because <laughs> you know <laughs> when he said about, like, I'm not going to put an interval, because if you go to the bathroom... It's fine. You'll just catch up when you see it again. And the second he said that, it's like, I will die without seeing this movie a second time. (laughs) That is a challenge. And I didn't drink any water the entire day before the press screening because I was not going to go to the bathroom during that movie. And I didn't. But having said that, I feel like this movie would be great in 4DX. And I would be curious about what that experience would be like. You heard it here first. Clarice Lockie will see it again in 4DX. No, no I'm um, not. 4DX, 4DX is only for Dune. I will be seeing Dune Part 2 in 4DX and no other movie ever again. Here's here's a hot take before a hot take. I'm not a big fan of intervals. Like, it, it filmmaking, films are about immersion. 
and I don't want to be taken out of the hypnotic spell that the film may or may not have me on for an interval. Just my take. Anyway. Uh, I like it. So, you have a so like, you're literally never going to the theatre again. <laughs> no, 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 I said cinema, not theatre. It's a different, But it's just okay? a stage show. You're looking at... You're, it's, a, it's the same in different formats, though, isn't it? You have intervals. Nah. Does that take you out? Nah, and also, yeah, just... there's certain like Cleopatra. You gotta have the interval because it's two chapters, and nobody is sitting mm. through that entire fucking movie in one go. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta have a little break to think about, to just think about Julius Caesar, and then you come back. <laughs> <laughs> For the last film I saw that had an interval was The Hateful Eight. Um, it's a while back now. Hannah, oh. screen stream or skip? Screen, of course. Once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I am also screen once. Obviously, we have a lot of caveats uh, with this film, but as a big screen experience, it's hard to deny its power. Uh, James Cameron still knows his thing. He's still doing his thing. Um, you know who's changing uh, the hierarchy of power? Fucking James Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> the hierarchy of power in the Hollywood universe is about change. From Pandora to Austria, it's time to talk Corsage. Then in the right moment, so. So, and then... She's a killer queen, gunpowder gelatin, dynamite with a laser beam, guaranteed to blow your mind. <laughs> that was Queen by Clarice Lockway. We should really, we, we, we have not done karaoke this year. Shame on us. Um, anyway, Corsage. Uh, I have not seen this film, but my esteemed colleagues have, but I shall be ting it up for them. Why do you, why do you hate female-led a... stories, someone? <laughs> I just, they're just not worth my time, Hannah. Can I tell you? Uh, <laughs> based with a future of strict ceremonies and royal duties, Empress Elizabeth of Austria rebels against her public image and comes up with a plan to protect her legacy. This is written and directed by Marie Kruzer, and it stars Ricky Creeps, Florian Tetchmaster, Katharina Lorenz, Gian Werner, Alma Hassoun, and Colin Morgan. Mm. <laughs> he, he's a jump scare in that, this movie. Did not expect him. It's like, oh, Merlin. <laughs> I love it because I'm exactly like, Merlin. I was watching it with someone, I was like, you know, from Merlin. Yeah, Merlin from Merlin. I haven't even seen that show, but I, when I see that man's face, I'm like, oh, it's Merlin. <laughs> I'm sorry, Colin Morgan, you've done other things. I apologize. (laughs) Okay, I like the sound of this. Empress Elizabeth of Austria sounds like a formidable character. What did you make of her arc uh, through this, Chris? So I, the only thing I knew about her going into this really, I mean, my good friend Sarah Cook loves Empress Elizabeth of Austria. (laughs) So she told me a little bit about her. Um, and a son who died by murder-suicide. It was a massive scandal at the time. It's oh, not wow. in the movie, though. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, what I did know going into it 
is that she had like a historically uh, famous, very, very tiny waist. And you know in Phantom of the Opera, the movie, mm. where Emmy Rossum wears that big white gown with the little stars in her head? That's based off a portrait of Elizabeth of Austria. Uh, so that's like all the information I had going in. And I feel like, look, I usually have a massive problem with filmmakers using corsets as a metaphor for like constraint and oppression because that's inaccurate corsets were actually really comfortable and like more comfortable than bras so it's it's bullshit but i will i will allow it in this case because she did there did seem to be some sort of eating disorder that she was struggling with that involved the corset being tight just laced like far far too tight to the point that it was really damaging and risking her health uh, and I think it does work very well here having that sort of image because it's a movie just all about it's a really like claustrophobic film and it made me feel incredibly sad because although it's like a, another movie about a woman in you know massive privilege who's sad about things like Marie Antoinette like Spencer I think this movie's particularly good at just communicating the, the isolation mm. and just like the feeling that she's just turned 40, like her beauty used to be the only thing that really made her valued by society. And now people don't really value her anymore. And it makes her feel like fucking shit. And it's just sad to, to watch. And, and I had a huge amount of empathy for this character. Mm, yeah. I, I, it's interesting you mentioned Spencer because I hated that and it was because of the central performance and just like the, the horror, like it was so melodramatic in a way what this isn't mm. because this felt, you know, relatable gets bandied around about a lot, but it, it did feel relatable because, you know, it's really sharply funny and also uh, her as a character, as you mentioned, is a yet another uh, installment of skinny white woman problems. Uh, skinny wealthy white woman problems but she's also a bit of a dick like I love it she, mm. it's like let's she is so horrible <laughs> like to so many people in her life like the control she has over the people her ladies in waiting like the way she treats other people you know there's sometimes you're kind of like I don't feel that much sympathy for you but when we think of what I like about this film is the way it connects the past with the present um the sense of, and I, I don't know if you noticed this, Clarice, I'm sure you have, but there was lots of moments, this is a period piece, but there was moments where you saw like a fire escape or there'd be mm. like, a, there'd be like a mop and bucket, you know, even there's a bit where they're on and a boat. electrical lamps. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, and, it, and that was obviously every scene. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, oh, I, that feels like it's on purpose because I think it's trying to say that this is something that continues to happen today. Because if we can compare her to you know, you mentioned the weight, the, the stuff. Her weight is brought up a lot, like how, oh, the gossip columns and all this. She's basically kind of similar to the, you know, today, women in the public eye who are scrutinised by the way they look. They have a different standard for how women are supposed to uh, navigate society compared to their husband who can openly have mistresses and all that type of stuff, you know. And I thought that was a really interesting kind of fresh way you know like the way Marie Antoinette did like the you know mood moves or you Yorgos Lanthimos the favorite and the way they're dancing I kind of like that bit because again it kind of makes you feel like this is this is might seem the period might seem like a fantasy world but actually there's so much that hasn't changed in the hundreds of years or what since and this is like what like 
100 years ago maybe 102 uh, this is the 19th century right so 18 1877 yeah. um, I think is when it started yeah and I, I just I really enjoyed the kind of world it created and that kind of link between the past and the present yeah and I I love that too and and it made me feel like I haven't actually researched this but it kind of made me feel like maybe they just turned up to these palaces and didn't change anything and just kind of shot as is which to me is is quite moving in the sense that when you go to these places like you are on the site of like a lot of emotions happened yeah. like these things happened and in that very spot and I I really liked that choice and the, yeah there's a lot of foreshadowing she keeps mentioning Sarajevo and you're like no because <laughs> uh, Sarajevo's where the First World War like kicked off mm. <laughs> with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand yeah, yeah. and and she keeps mentioning like what are we going to do about Sarajevo yeah. <laughs> and she's a bit of a Cassandra figure in that sense I feel like there's a lot of scenes where she's kind of trying to gently nudge her husband to be like do you think maybe you should yeah. think about that and he's like shut up no I'm the man She's going to be right at the end of the day. Let's talk about Vicky Kleeps, um, who is a fantastic actor. Uh, the last thing I saw her in was old, but she was obviously very good in Phantom Thread as well. I believe she won the, she won the, I don't know. I believe she won the Uncertain Regard Best Performance Prize at Cannes for this role, in addition to Best Actress at the European Film Awards recently, which of course the great Hannah Flint covered. She wasn't there though. So let's talk she about... was got a cold. And what? She, she had a cold and she was there in this like Lacoste oh. hoodie, like like wearing a baseball cap. And I was like, I love this mm. for her. I love it. <laughs> did she did, did she send in a video? Yeah, no, she was there live. She was zooming live. She couldn't be there, but oh, the okay. director was nice. there. Fantastic. So let's talk about that performance. Is it, are those awards well earned? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, she's great. Uh, you I know, know, it's hard though because always awards always feels like. You know, because there's Zah Emir Ibrahimi, who's in Holy Spider, who is sensational. Mm. So it's kind of like, I mean, she it's not that she doesn't deserve the, mm. war, the award, but it's, I always hate yeah. those things where it's like, oh, but they're all so great. Women! Little women <laughs> gif! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Honestly, I feel the same way about the best actress um, sort of run up to the Oscars this year. Everyone who's in the shot with the, with the nomination, and there should be many because I've seen many fantastic performances by women this year. Um, I feel like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a pick 'em. You know, yeah, Michelle can win it. Um, Michelle Yo can win it. Um, she won't though, the... she, and it's annoying. Yeah. It'll be a white woman. It'll be fucking Kate yeah. Blanchett winning for Tar. Anyway, Vicky. She is fantastic in Tar. But anyway, yes, Vicky. Talk to me about Vicky. What's going on with Vicky? I. Well, one thing I want to say is the makeup is incredible in this movie because I've seen Vicky Creeps, like, in the flesh. She glows. <laughs> she is a glowing <laughs> woman. But they made her look very ill in this. <laughs> so they did a really good job. Like, so you know, sometimes when in movies like biopics, it's like it's meant to be the real, like, bottom era of um not bottom era rock bottom era bottom era era. the rock bottom era of someone's life but they're like still looking fantastic and it's like okay but like they did a really good job of the makeup um and she like you know building off what hannah said about her being so unlikable and having room to be 
harsh and angry and angry about her circumstances i think she handles that aspect of the character very well and always has in all of her performances um she's very good at like playing people who who are like very like strong like strong-willed and are really like rooted in place um but then not making that stiff and there's still like a softness to her and and she's so vulnerable and you can read the sadness so plainly on her face but she's not having to yo-yo between like angry woman wilting flower angry woman wilting flower she is consistent the whole way through and i think it's not it's not the easiest performance to do but she did it really well mm-hmm. yeah and um you know even i know this is a separate thing but i'm always just it's just so impressed with European actors or people who aren't American or, like, British in the way they can navigate several languages at once. You know, in this, she's doing... Oh, yeah. German, French, English, like... And you just, and I it, was so confused when the subtitles were on the screen, but I was like, but I can understand what they're saying. And it took me a couple of lies to realize they were speaking French. <laughs> so I was like, do I suddenly know German? Yeah. No, they were just speaking French. But I think it's also being able to um, navigate that so fluidly, you know, and it, it that adds to the performance where it doesn't feel stilted or stunted. And, and, and again, like, I I feel like everything you just said, Clarice, there's a power to a performance. Um, just this kind of in, this real um, anchor in this and her steadfastness, um, and what she doesn't say as well in the stillness. There's an amazing. I mean, even I just think about this scene where she's like, <laughs> she just she's at dinner, and again, it's this thing where she's not supposed to speak. She's not supposed to do all this type of stuff. And there's a point where, like, and it's like her, she just, like, gets up and leaves and then flips the birdie. And you're just like, <laughs> no, and like, even the way she flips, and it's, again, this bringing modernism to the past. Even the way she does it, she does it in the kind of, like, hip-hop, like, Eminem sense of, like, you know, some people just do like that, like, do the way they hold things down, but she kind of, like, still had their, like, index finger and the one opposite the middle finger and like up like that it was like oh yeah that's like gang (laughs) that's a gang middle finger um and let the record reflect that hannah just flipped us i did but not 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 (laughs) intentionally there was no intention behind it it was just uh demonstrative um yeah I, i think she she's i think this is what it calls for right you need to have someone who's compelling compelling lead to kind of keep all together so yeah, I was with her even when she really pissed me off. I was like, oh, this bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Okay, uh, well, it's time for our screen, stream, or skip recommendations on Corsage. Wait, hold Thanks. on a second. You can't say Corsage and not let Clarice talk about costume. <laughs> <laughs> you are quite right. Rewind. Clarice, costumes. Talk to me. Great, beautiful, <laughs> loved them. And I think I'm not an expert in this era, but I think yes, they look pretty <laughs> accurate. I think the mentality seems to have been we're going to allow the production design to yeah have electrical lamps and fire escapes and mops and things like that, but we're going to keep the actual people looking 
pretty accurate. I mean, mm. that French guy had an earring, which I thought was great, <laughs> <laughs> but did not seem particularly historically accurate. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of these like very hourglass gowns, which obviously kind of underline the tininess of the waist. Uh, and a lot of there's a purple gown she was wearing. Cause there's a whole thing yeah. with Violet. She keeps giving Violet candies to people and she's got Violet gowns. And, and cigarettes, The detail no? was incredible. Like cigarettes? And, or... Yeah. Yeah, Violet cigarettes as well. I actually don't know what the symbolism no. is, but it looked great. Yeah. <laughs> and I loved her giant hair with the braiding. It's mm. so intricate. And I liked that they were they were faithful to that because I think a lot of period things they just do modern hair I mean obviously there's a hair change in the movie that is narratively significant but (laughs) when she has the big braided hair like that looked really accurate in how she looks in the portrait so I loved that it was Mm, great mm, mm. you know every now and then I think about sort of potentially going into filmmaking later down in life I say this to say this if I do I'm going to make a period drama and I'm going to put Clarice in all these costumes that she clearly wants to be in. I'm going to fulfill that dream for you, Chris. Oh That's God, what I'm yes. going to do. Fade, fade to black productions. Where they're like... <laughs> <laughs> yes. oh um, I will say, just to add on that hair makeup, there's a really interesting bit where, like, and I didn't know this, where the, where the, the king or the emperor, he um, takes off his, like, side beards. beards. Oh, and I was yeah. like, is that... Did they have, like, fake beards that you could stick on back then? Or is that kind of, like, part of the... The kind of again, the kind of breaking of the kind of period area, like and bringing that kind of connection to the front. Because I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, they definitely had like stuff like that. I think it probably was modern because I don't know how you'd like stick it because he just peels it off, which seems I don't know what you'd use, but maybe I don't know. I don't yeah. know about that. Yeah. The emperor just the emperor doesn't just have any clothes. The emperor has no bits. He has a big tash though. <laughs> Well, it's actually sideburns, wasn't it, really? More than a beard. Sideburns. They were all the rage back then. Amon, can you grow sideburns? Unfortunately, no. It's a source of annoyance for me, actually, because I know that I'd rock sideburns so well. I'd look so good in sideburns. Yeah, you were like, you saw Mr. Malcolm's list. It's like, damn it. Why don't you get some stick-ons? You know what I mean? Shoppy, shoppy. The sideburns are looking great. Have you seen Samuel Jackson on Sesame Street talking about hair? I feel like you should watch it. <laughs> no. Yeah, there's a clip going around online. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, now, unless Hannah, you have, you have any final thoughts that you want to get in there? I just think, um, before we go just, to you know, I just a thing, I think obviously we're talking about Vicky, but the supporting cast was really there. I really like the relationship, you know, we mm-hmm. didn't just get the her relationship to the public, and, and you know, relationship to herself. There's also really some really beautiful moments and, I don't know, like heart-rendering, heart-rendering moments between her and her daughter, her and her son, um and even with the kind of so-called lovers in her life as well I thought that was really interesting and I thought all the actors and especially her lady in waiting I thought that her her character was quite just kind of broke my heart a little bit um but yeah I think it was a really solid ensemble performance all right screen stream or skip on corsage Clarice screen yeah, screen. I think they're doing previews now, but I don't think it's out until fully worldwide, well, nationwide until maybe Boxing Day, I want to say. But yeah, if you can get into like yeah. a picture house or something, or I don't know, occurs on early, they're doing early previews. What do you know? A female film that is worth my time. 
least it sounds like it. Um, <laughs> I will try and get to it at some point, I promise. Women rule. Women are great. And speaking of women ruling and being great, it's time to discuss our next film, Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery. Ladies and gentlemen. You expected the mystery. Get your hand off of that. You expected a puzzle. But for one person on this island, this is not a game. One side of love, and it was a gas. Soon turn up, had an onion in the glass. <laughs> Um, I know okay. there is a song called Glass Onion by the Beatles, but I don't know how it goes, so I did not do that. Oh, mm. uh, well. And also Knives Out, song by Radiohead. He's naming them after songs. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> the true mystery. Him. What's going to be next? Was <laughs> um, he some Radiohead Beatles? So it'd be like some other band like that. So can I tell you a little little thing before we get into it? Because you know I did the Glass Onion cover story. And there was a little line that we didn't put mm-hmm. in. But there was, I spoke to Ed Norton and I was like, oh, what's the next one going to be? And he said, this is what Ed Norton said. He said, oh, potentially. He was like, well, I think there's something about like theatre players. But that like, it like murder with theatre. And it makes sense because he loves Sunday. Mm-hmm. But mm, but yes, then if we but then I wonder if that's going to be off the table now because early murders in the building season three seems to hinge on a stage show and a murder mystery at the stage show so I don't mm. know but anyway there you go that's, that's a little, little also see how they run was about a murder at a stage show yeah but let's we talk about that <laughs> but this this is Glass Onion a knives out mystery. Tech billionaire Miles Braun invites his friends for a getaway on his private Greek island. When someone turns up dead, Detective Benoit Blanc is put on the case. Written and directed by Ryan Johnson, it stars Daniel Craig, Edward Norton, Janelle Monet, Catherine Hahn, Leslie Odom Jr., Jessica Henwick, Madeline Klein, Madeline Klein, Kate Hudson, and Dave Bautista. A lot of people. Yay. I mean, I feel like we don't really need to rehash how we felt about Knives Out because everybody liked it. Yeah. <laughs> it was my film of the year in you a film like that had Knives Avengers Out. Endgame come out that same year. Uh, I think that says it all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm on though. How does this compare though? Is this your now your favorite movie of this year? It is number three. In my movies of the okay. year, uh, I freaking loved it. It's so good. It's I'm gonna say on par with the first one. In some ways, I do think it's better um, because, and we're gonna dance around it. But there's things that happen with Janelle Monae in this film that I think help elevate it above the original. Um, because what they do uh, with the with with who she plays. Um, I think it's sensational. It's a mid-movie twist. I, I didn't want to say that. It's, the, 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 it was a twist that I really didn't see coming um, and really elevated the film in a special way for me. So, yeah. I, I'm, you know what? I'm going to say it. It's better than the first one. There you go. Mm, I disagree, but Hannah, I'm going to let... What's your judgment? Better, better, worse, same? <laughs> uh, I, 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 
I it's a hard question because again I don't see them as they're all individual stories right it's like Poirot it's like mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. a sequel it's like another chat mm. it's like another volume it's like another novel but if I was tip going to tip the scales I it's hard because I think I liked the characters some of the characters really love them I think some of the, I think it was as sharp as it, you know what this is like splitting hairs really I might have to go mm-hmm. with yeah. knives out though because you're not going to like this Amon I think Janelle Monet is not as strong as actor as everyone said Clay's thing she is. And I don't know if I was that. I think she was, for me, kind of the weak link. What? Wow, that that shocks me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you want to That's get into that. I just, there's something about Janelle Monet where, and again, because of what it required for this role, mm-hmm. I find, I, you know... I didn't think, I think she was a, a just like a little bit wooden in places. Whereas everyone else is kind of, maybe that's also maybe the character. I don't know, maybe because there's a character and everyone's quite outlandish in this film. And in a way she's kind mm. of more of a straight person. Um, but yeah, there's something where I feel like she's kind of a, another one of these kind of like pop stars or musical stars who are like, I'm an actor now. And actually, I don't know if, um, I don't know if I, I think that the kind of, the the talent is there yet to hold hold their own. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, look, I haven't really seen her in much things apart from, obviously, Moonlight. I did watch Antebellum. Um, but yeah. All the best. Yeah. Um, but so but I don't know. I'm not saying um, she's like, I'm not saying she's not good. But I don't think she's phenomenal. Like I don't come away thinking I didn't come away from that film thinking, oh, Janelle Monet was the standout. Oh, that's interesting. For me, I did come out of it feeling that she was the MVP, that she was the best character in the film. Um, uh, and again, you know, we're going to tiptoe around it, but the the things which happen, which give her more room to play. But that's the and thing, I'm not saying the character herself, wasn't good. I'm not saying I didn't like the character, yeah. but no, I just don't no, know no. if she 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 was a, she pulled it off. I mean Clarice, come come get involved. Mm. I I thought she did what the character needed. I mean, yeah, it's not like a Lady Gaga and Star is Born kind of revelatory performance. I thought she was fantastic in Moonlight. So I do think I do wonder whether it's more about her servicing like I think you're right it's the straight man part in this and she kind of has to be normal (laughs) just come off really normal in this movie for it to work so it didn't she I guess she wasn't the MVP for me I don't know who would be probably Daniel Craig because I love Benoit (laughs) he's great Kate Hudson for me Kate Hudson Mm. oh she what she's so good she because also like and again I think you know, this is why it stands out, but her character playing Birdie, this fashionista, who's basically super problematic. And just like, you know, the opening mm. bit where like, because again, I like the fact that it was like a COVID related, like it was set during that thing. And the way they wove in the COVID narrative of it, where it didn't feel like too much. It was like, oh, this is actually 
hilarious where she's like oh yeah i'm in my bubble of like a hundred random people in a in an apartment i thought that was really well done and i think you know kate hudson has always been a great comedian a great comedy actor knows her timing and then to see like her and Catherine hart reunited after uh how to this guy in 10 days it actually was like it was like felt me filled me with so much joy (laughs) (laughs) i i was just gonna say the fact that we can each pick a different option here and i'm not mad at any of those picks just goes to show sort of what a great ensemble or what a great showcase for uh, the actors this movie is yeah i to circle back like i i think you know that if they're both hanging off a cliff which one would i save question <laughs> would probably be wow the- way to make it dark <laughs> It's a movie about murder. <laughs> I think my one criticism of this, but it's not massively a criticism, is that Knives Out like felt politically like sharp. Like Knives Out felt like it really had a point to make. It was came out while Trump was president, and it was very like on point about the hypocrisy of like liberals. The um. What was the thing about the line about Hamilton? <laughs> it was really cringe. That stuff. In, um, immigrants, th- we get the job done. Yeah, does he just say the line? Yeah, and it's just yeah. really like... Yeah, he does, doesn't he? Gosh. That made Knives Out feel like a lot more like a culturally important and like, oh, this really feels like a moment in time. I'm not saying it was a perfect satire, but it felt like something. I feel like this one for me is more Ryan Johnson going, okay, Netflix gave me like a shit ton of money. This is a franchise now. <laughs> How am I going to make this movie built to last? And I think he did make the smart decision of just making it funnier, but I don't know if the social commentary side of it is as sharp. I mean, maybe incidentally, because let's talk about edward norton's character (laughs) who is a tech billionaire who likes to pretend that he's very smart but maybe he's not so smart i think i think in that way (laughs) i i think in that way it very much is of the moment because over the last few years there's been a lot of people online uh, not even online, just you know, even in the political spheres who have been claiming that they're smart, but really they're not smart. Um, and that is very much at the daughter's character. And I love the fact that that notion, Ryan Johnson makes it an Achilles heel of Benoit Blanc's character in that he is the smartest guy in the room, but he doesn't do well with dumb stuff, which is both funny. And I love that in this film we get to learn a little bit more about Benoit um, the first sort of uh, opening 10 minutes or so get to learn a bit about, a bit more about his social life uh, which is really really fun um, Ryan Johnson on the press tour for this has been very the thing that he keeps repeating is that Benoit Blanc is not the protagonist of his film uh, he's the detective he's the fulcrum around which things revolve around but he's not the protagonist mm. that is very much a different character which I'm not going to spoil um, but Part of the reveal of that is what I love about this film and what, for me, may take it over the top, the, the first one. Yeah, it's, it's, I think with this one, I think you're right, the social commentary isn't as sharp or, like, you know, the kind of... It's still dealing with the, the class divide, but not in the, you know... The class divide, extreme wealth, 
also during pandemic, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be a lot of like, characters. The way that I think one thing that this is very good at is creating characters who you can immediately recognize. Like you could be say, oh, that's mm-hmm. that person in the world. It's not, it's like not tropes, but like, you know, these are people that we're aware of, whether it's Dave Bautista's like, you know, Joe Rogan-esque YouTuber or like, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Birdie's fashionista, the senator, Catherine Hahn's senator is like willing to do every- anything to like, and I think that's what it is as well. In a way it's, you know, it's interesting. In a way, there's a lot of like kind of mirror with triangle sadness of like what we will do to maintain power, to be close to power, to have power, you know. Um, there's a, it's quite cynical. Uh, but obviously that triangle sadness is super cynical. This obviously tries to like pull it mm-hmm. back because obviously, you know, mm-hmm. Ryan Johnson would rather have, you know, he's be. I think he's still being critical, but he's not as being like... Um, specific but i do think those things are there in about but i think it's difficult because now we've got so many films and tv shows about extreme wealth (laughs) and Mm are interest in them but so it's kind of like how do you make something that's not so boxy but then it's also trying to like get in those points so maybe you're right it's not as sharp um but yeah yeah Yeah. i think the the slight difference to me is you know, in the first movie, you had a much starker social divide because you had the rich people own the house and then you had Anna de Armas' character who was the person who worked for them. I feel like here... And the ethnicity there as well. Like, Yeah. Yes. Well, everyone except for Um, those, you have a multicultural cast now. So even like Jessica Hennig, who plays mm -hmm. Peg, who's like the assistant of Birdie, it's kind of like, but you're also her assistant and you benefit like you kind of benefit from it and you're not exactly even in your position as like the downstairs person it's hard to kind of like emphasize. she's still like yeah financially comfortable and there's there's not as as stark a like this is the oppressor and this is the oppressed kind yeah. of situation so which makes i think maybe the mystery more interesting because it makes you question the characters more because everyone's kind of on the same level so it's like anybody could be hiding any kind of secret um so mon i wanted to ask about like the construction of it because there's so many good visual gags in this there's a thing with like a a a glass case that has a security automatic shut thing i'm not going to say what's (laughs) in the glass case but (laughs) it's like there's a use of repeating sounds and there's also like a a an hourly dong chime thing Mm -hmm. and the way that he uses sound and camera work i just think is amazing i've kind of already said expand on that (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah no it's i agree with everything you just said those two things in particular um those two things in particular and the way that they play out in the wider mystery are fantastic and i was just taken on a ride and i really enjoyed every second of it um, you know, granted, I'm not the best at working things out on this murder mystery level in real time, um, but I was taken on a ride nonetheless. I, I, I could never sort of get ahead of the story, which is exactly what you want uh, in this in a film like this. I could watch, I mean, I'm, I'm just such a big fan of these movies. I, I will happily watch three, four, five. Bring it, Ryan, bring it. But that's, I think, what's the fun <laughs> of it, you know. I think I knew pretty early on what was gonna like but I just didn't know how it was gonna play out it's like I know who's the big bad 
right? I know who's going to be the person. But the exciting thing is like, how do you go on that journey? Because again, it's like the whodunit formula. It's been going quite a lot. The, the fun thing isn't working out who it is. It's the fun thing working out how you get the how you get there. And I, mm-hmm. I was just like, I know it's like, how is this going to play out? And, you know, I don't, yeah, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? It's a difficult coming off the success of like a massive one where it was kind of like, oh, wow, this is totally off mm. kilter. So how do you like, mm. you know, jump on that? But I think it is super entertaining. Maybe doesn't mm-hmm. say as much, but like, I just love when you have so many great actors in one space riffing mm-hmm. the off each other. And Ed Norton, I will say, He's so good as his Miles Braun. It's like, oh, you're so gross. <laughs> and like, that's such, and you're like, oh, God, just the ick, big ick. I, I love that. And we've got to shout out Noah Sagan, who is the only character from the original Knives Out to be in it because he's in all of Ryan Johnson's movies. And I love the way he just like pops up here and there. It absolutely mm. great. Loved it. Well, no, there's another repeated Joseph Gordon Levitt. I'm not going to say who he is, but he's also in the movie somewhere. Where? Oh, and obviously Depp Benoit Blanc, but you know what I mean. Wait, where is well, he? Yeah. Joseph Gordon-Levitt was in... It. No, wait. He's Joseph Gordon-Levitt's been in every single one of Ryan Johnson's movies. Who was somewhere. he in Knives Out? Oh, he was like the voice on a phone or something. Oh, okay. He was in it, though. Oh, okay, fine. And it's 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 kind of hidden, which is why I don't want to say what it is. But you Oh, cool, I'm going to rewatch it then. I'm going to try and look out for it. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about that, actually, like... This is a film that was only in cinemas a week, and I feel like that's just a bummer. Like I, when I watched it, it wasn't a cinema, but it was in the cinema of like four people. It was an early uh, junket thing. I would have loved watching this with a big audience. I did I watch it with a big audience. I was at the gla- we were at the Glass Onion, LFF well, closing gala, it. didn't we, Clarice? <laughs> mm. Where everyone's in yeah, the- and it was really fun. I will say, Janelle Monae yeah. slays every red carpet. She owns that shit. <gasps> She was wearing this amazing red. Well, this leads me on to one point. We gotta talk about. We gotta talk about Benoit's <laughs> little swimming outfit. Mm. So adorable. I love it. Mm. It's like a little stripe, two yeah. piece, and he's got the little neckerchief. I mean, <laughs> anything, anything else about the aesthetics? Because I think one thing to point out as well is that we've gone from like very dark wood house to Mamma Mia. Well, this is the thing. I feel like I'm just like quoting my glass onion piece because, you know, it is that. You've got this very light, even from the, you know, even from what was a quite dark Massachusetts kind of like gothic um, chamber orchestra sort of like vibe feel, like opera. So this is more evil under the sun. They go to a resort. And even like the kind of music is a bit lighter and stuff. And I think that kind of like... It's like midsummer, right? Where sometimes, you know, where even things that can be like dark and deathly can happen in broad daylight. You know, there's that kind of nervy element to it. And it's just like hot and, you know, temperatures are rising. Adds a little bit to the tension. Also, just on the outfit things, that that felt like a very like Peter Yusinov. <laughs> like nod. <laughs> like it felt like, oh, this is a very nod to like the 19... 19- 30s or 20s 30s 40s kind of like oh that's Agatha Christie that's what a detective would have worn back back in the day I kind of wanted him to actually get in the water and do like have you seen A Evil Under the Sun where Peter Ustinov does a little swimming and it's so funny <laughs> yeah. yeah and it felt like that it felt like a combination of that and like reverse bond <laughs> yeah because he's kind of going in the pool as opposed to coming out of the ocean. Yeah. Uh, and and I like how much I really like how much Daniel Craig's been like, fuck James Bond. 
<laughs> I'm just gonna play just a silly fun character. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm gonna, you know, take the pairs out of very rigorous ideas in masculinity and say yeah. he still knows a way around a monologue. Um there's a couple yes. that he delivers. There's one especially which just had me cackling. Um I did this it's so good. It rivals the donut in donut hole from the first one for me. I was oh, I, I wish I watched this in a big audience. <laughs> I really do oh. because it, I was having so so much fun. It was great. So lots of people of course will be going to visit family over the holidays and this is very conveniently dropping on the 23rd right as everyone's going to be traveling so should people should people show this to their families <laughs> or should they skip it Anna stream whether you're seeing relatives or you staying away <laughs> if you don't yes. want the drama yes. of family drama at Christmas have the drama of glass onions and knives out, knives out mystery Yes, Benoit is your dad now. <laughs> if you want it. Come <laughs> on. Uh, Clarice, Hannah, I suspect that people who put this film on in the holidays will have a great time. So this is me saying, stream, glass onion, and that's no, mystery. In a very bad southern accent. I that was very it. much like... Just, <laughs> no, you started off with it, and then it just tailed yeah, off. I know. And by the end, you were speaking in just in a deep voice. Then it, then it descended into, like, commercial voiceover guys, like, in a world. <laughs> in a world. It did, didn't it? Oh, gosh. That would be something that I work on, then I'll come back in January with just the best southern accent. You, you will not be able to tell where Amon ends and Benoit Blanc begins. I'm excited. That is my promise to you all. Or threat. Take it while you take it away. <laughs> well, from from the mystery of who done a murder to the mystery of existence. What's the point of our lives? What are we doing here? What is art? What is identity? Spado. Silverio. 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 Ya levántate, Silverio. Silverio Gama, periodista, documentalista, slash, artista. ¿Dónde estás? I walk this empty street on the boulevard of broken dreams where the city sleeps and I'm the only one and I walk alone. Bado, bado, bado. Can I just explain? I picked that because the first song, the first track on the Bardo score is called Boulevard of Broken Dreams. There you go. And I was like, oh, really? oh I don't remember him sampling Green Day. It's a different song. no. Totally different. Totally different. Okay, so this is Bardo. So this is Bardo. Uh, it centers on, uh, it's a kind of docu-fiction, kind of semi-autobiographical uh, epic um, about a renowned Mexican journalist and documentary filmmaker who returns home uh, and works through an existential crisis as he grapples with his identity, familial relationships, and the folly of his memories. Directed by Alejandro Gonzalez Inaritu and written by Inaritu and Nicolas Giacabone, it stars Daniel Jimenez Cacho, Diego Tello de Griselda Siciliani, uh, Jomena La Madrid. Hmm. 
Ike Sanchez Solano and J.O. Sanders. So before we get... Yes, hello. <laughs> Sorry, I have to lord that those pronunciations are off the chain. Yes. I mean, I don't know. None of us are Spanish here. So I got Spanish speaking. So maybe someone's going to be like, you butchered it. But when I was in Iceland, there was a big thing where I was like, oh, there was like, when you do European Film Awards, there was so many names. I was like, God, I need someone to be there. And I had like a producer with me on the red carpet. It's like pronunciation how do I say it and there's this guy Carlos Arefez who is in I am so excited I don't even remember that part for Tejo Almodovar film he was yes. great yes mm-hmm. he did the DJing so mm-hmm. anyway mm-hmm. side note okay so yes I I, I LFF I got to speak to Alejandro I mean who doesn't it's not like the dream person to speak to and what was really interesting for mm-hmm. me Again, this is super biographical, and we've had a lot of films recently with Joanna Hogg's The Eternal Daughter, The Fableman, Steven Spielberg, and this is his his uh, entry into that self-reflective uh, cinematic uh, exploration. And as, as someone who's written my kind of memoir books this year, there was so much I wanted to get it grappled, because I think it's been interesting to see the reaction to this film compared to, like, the other films that have also delved into, you know, into personal relations. And obviously this, I think it, this was a three-and-a-half-hour film, but when I saw it, it was reduced down after it came out of film festivals. So, yeah, uh, so without further ado, here is me and Alejandro. Alejandro, welcome to the Fade to Black podcast. Um, I'm so excited to talk to you about this film. Like, just on a personal note, I've just released a memoir myself last week, which kind of looks at... My uh, use my life as a jumping off point to look at cinema, like representation of women and identity. You, so you wrote it. You I wrote it. Yeah. Wow. Um, so when I watched this, I, I had so many questions because again, that kind of putting yourself, like looking back at your life, the memories of that, and using that as a jumping off point, obviously mm-hmm. in part. So I'm really excited, excited to learn. Like, where do you even begin? when you're trying to kind of put this down, put these ideas down, put your memories down? And is it, was it quite, um, I don't know, uh, just came through you naturally? Did it just flow out of you? Or is it quite a struggle to articulate exactly what you wanted to say, especially with all these old memories? I bet that you have a better answer than me. <laughs> especially if you have just done the same. No, I don't. I, I honestly don't even understand how I did it. Uh, yeah, yeah. When I get asked that question, well, so I'm ha- asking you. You have just said it, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying the same answer. I don't know how to understand. Because it, it's, it's, it's true. It, it's a very, very, uh, it's, a, it's a process that we underestimate uh, our, our, our subconscious uh, 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 you know, life, and when things come from that, it's hard to explain because there's you cannot ask logic to uh, to that part of our brains. It's a mystery still, right? So, so and it should be keep like that. So when it demands answers or logic to it, as in the in the in the in the in the in the in the, in the, in the world that we are living that is binary and full of logic and full of demanding truths and facts and dogmas and things should be this way, that part of our brain and our existence does not have that. It just, it just flow uh, 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 and, and it's hard to explain it. But I think it's a need. It's a need that manifests, manifests at some point in your life emotionally. And it's something that you have to dis- desintoxicate. It's like the desintoxication of things that are being trapped mm. for so long and then they have to come out. Mm-hmm. That's it. So you express it through a memoir, 
through a, out to a portrait of a painting as painters do or with a film, mm. you know, I think. I think about Rashomon a lot and the kind of idea, the relativity of truth and, you know, we're having a conversation right now. My perspective of it is going to be totally different to yours. Mm-hmm. There's a truth in the middle of that. So I suppose when you're looking back on your life and the people who are a part of that, were there conversations you were having with them where you were thinking about, oh, I have this moment that I kind of want to explore, speaking to your wife or your kids, and like, oh, I remember that slightly differently. And how did that kind of affect the writing process of when you were doing this? Because my memory is a mess. Uh, I don't have a good memory, and I cannot barely remember things of my childhood by some blocking or something <laughs> I have. I cannot depart from... From truth, I, 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 that's why I have been saying that when people say, is this about you, it's an autobiography? I said, no, it's not an autobiography because an autobiography departs from claiming that these facts were this way, right? Chronologically and with some, you know, and I think what I discover is that my memory is something that I cannot trust. Anybody, I think, should trust their memory because, as I always feel, is that all these events, slices of moments that has passed, uh, uh, when we remember uh, memory, uh, in a way, it's built on an interpretation of what we went through in a very precise moment in our life, captured by a very limited nervous system that interpretate that emotionally different from the moment that you are remembering that kind of same event. So every time that you remember that event, you can interpret it differently depending on where you are at that same moment. So it's triply elusive. So I think the only thing that is true and I think actually sustains or maintains or is, is, is constant is the emotional impact that that event have on you. And that doesn't mean that that event, it was absolutely true the way you think that you remember because it can be challenged by other people. But the emotion that it left you there sometimes can be true. And that's why it's so delicate, those kind of things, because because as the character said, truth in a way lacks, uh, 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 memory lacks truth, but just possess emotional conviction. And that emotional conviction and that uncertainty that I had from my own memories was where I depart to start this thing, which is an emotional ride of an interpretation and metaphors of things that for me have been emotionally important and to navigate and flesh them out in in images as a dream more than as a fact. That, that, that's kind of that how this film in a way worked for me. You know? And I think you can have just more fun with that like, rather than doing something so literal, I, I, I suppose the surrealist elements, it's, I mean, did you, how much was it storyboarded? How much was, you kind of had stuff on a script, but you kind of just let things kind of work out on the day? Like, how much preparation did you get to, to create these, like, vignettes? Ooh, a lot. <laughs> this really requires a lot of work. I think in the creation, in the writing, I think to allow yourself to laugh of moments that sometimes were painful, uh, 
by this moment with a father that appeared to you in a dream and you have the opportunity to say whatever you would like to have said or to hear what you would have loved to hear but making yourself a little smaller and things like that I think allow myself to really not taking everything seriously or factual or I'm just playing around with again emotionally what it meant to me and it's, a, it's again it's a metaphor of things so it's very liberating to approach things like that not very seriously but at the same time truthful emotionally. What I think that is um, difficult is how to shoot that, how to really make that um, happen, you know, uh, in, in the, in, in, that makes sense, that is real, that is truthful, but at the same time is off and has this quality of the atmosphere of a memory from the point of view of this guy that is in a flow of consciousness. That took me a lot of my skills, experience, and all myself to, to, to try to understand how to solve this physically, technically, and emotionally. You know? Do you feel, I mean, do you feel that you couldn't have made this film at any earlier point in your life? Like, every single film that you've ever made or TV show or anything creatively you've done has kind of built you up to this point and therefore you were able to kind of pay tribute to that as well in the film as well as you know look at these big up their ideas yes yes I think I, I, I am now in an age and in, I, I have mature and have enough experience to be able to jump into this kind of crazy experiment and and solve it one way or the other you can like it or not but I solve it it's there and and to have the confidence I will say uh, to take out the fear of going into a journey like that for five years that was very inward and introspective. It's an introspective journey that can be much more scary than just to, 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 to observe the world outside, but to observe the world from the inside is, is a little bit more scary. And then to bring it up, and I think that, yes, I think to have counted with Darius Congi or Eugenio Caballero, Ana Terrazas and Daniel Jimenez Cachara, or to the way that I was able to get all this incredible team and collaborators behind this film to make it happen, it could have not happened 10 years ago. You know? Did it provide you any answers, like doing it? Cause you was, did it provide you any answers? Because I can imagine, I don't know, when I was in your mind, there were so many things that I hadn't even thought about, and suddenly I wrote something down. I was like, oh, that's how, like, now I've got some perspective on it. Now I understand that situation a little better. Was there quite a few moments of that during this whole process? Yes, yes, I think there were some moments that I felt, uh, when you are doing a film like this, you have to be completely detached from any emotion because you cannot get in that trap. It's like a surgery, it's like I always say, like, like doctors when they are in a heart open surgery, they cannot be thinking about the family members of, oh, this guy died, and no, no, I mean, you are basically a, a technician that has to be mindful about every aspect of your job and not get caught in emotions. You know what I mean? You cannot be caught in that. So when I was doing it, no. I think when I was uh, putting things together and during the writing and pre-production, I think there was a lot of things that were coming to me uh, that was very, very incredible revelations of things that I was not planning that inform me why I was doing those things. So it was it was a great liberated experience, liberation experience, you know, in many ways. And I suppose I, I quite I quite um appreciate and empathize with this 
being caught between like two cultures and your heritage and feeling disconnected from that. Um, I, I suppose, you know, you know, I'm half Tunisian, so and I just went to Tunisia for the first time, and there's this like weird thing about being there where like it felt like home, mm-hmm. even though I've never been there before. Mm-hmm. And I suppose with this, certain scenes like the scene in the airport where he's coming, went in the airport where they're coming mm-hmm. back, and mm-hmm. you know, getting told this is not your, mm-hmm. this you can't call this home. I don't know. Ha, ha, is that like a personal experience that's happened to you that being able to like build on? I know obviously a lot of these things are just jumping off points, but are there specific instances that you know you feel like yourself, even at this point, insecure in you being able to claim yourself as a Mexican American or a Mexican mm-hmm. immigrant? Has that been I don't know that insecurity and vulnerability you felt? Well, I, I, first of all, I have been 21 years in California and I have had a great uh, moments and experience and it has been wonderful because I have got a lot of freedom and a lot of anonymous, you know, a lot of great things. But I can write a book or make another film just by things that has happened to me in the airport <laughs> and the borders, you know. Uh, you know, I, we, we can spend one hour talking about anecdotes that I have been through. But this particular anecdote happened to my wife, exactly as that. Literally every word has been borrowed from her, and uh, and it was exactly what happened to her. And I thought that was a very interesting kind of thing that happened, that it's kind of the resume of things that sometimes, and there are offices that are wonderful and mar- but when you confront somebody like that, that your identity or whatever you feel is a vulnerable identity that you are handling and it's just everything in a paper and somebody questioned that, it's a, it's a, it's a very, very delicate situation or interesting or funny actually. So, I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So that's why I want to portray that with some absurdity of how, how these things work. But yes, this is true, absolutely true. I love how everything escalates. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. always funny. Um, the scene with this—I mean, there's a the scene with the Let's Dance. It, I think that might be my favorite bit. It just felt so freeing. Um, shooting that one, shooting that one. I mean, getting permission to use that song as well. Mm-hmm. Like, how easy is that? But I suppose. I mean, I'm like, when's the musical coming out? Because I need that from you. I know you said you're not going to make any more. Mm-hmm. Might not make any more movies, but I feel like you've got a musical in your wheelhouse. <laughs> um, but shooting that one again, like how is that? Because it just looked just, just so intense and textured and sweaty, and I felt like I was feeling everything now. Mm-hmm. Silviera is feeling. So tell me a bit about like conceptualizing that and then realizing it. Well, I I, I thought about this this scene um, since the very early beginning. I I wanted to have this uh, moment of him kind of capturing and recuperating uh, the life and joy and intensity and colorful kind of cumbia, music, sweaty reality of my country which is so rich in that sense in this club which actually exists that is a cathedral of the kind of uh, salsa music but suddenly getting him inside his head in a way almost like all the music that happened in the film as you notice Genesis, uh, Jose Jose or in this case David Bowie is a cappella which is when you sing a song that you love you just mumble the lyrics that's how you leave the songs that you are interiorly singing in yourself, like with, with the silence. And I think for me it was a way for him to say, I'm enjoying a dance song, which I love. 
taking out everything, stripping reality and having himself just enjoying his soul, and obviously this is a metaphor, <laughs> it's very ludic, the film, in, in the middle of everybody, enjoying his family, the daughter, the son, the friend, you know, all, for me was a way for getting into his emotion in the middle of all this craziness around. So it was a way to interpret, again, a dream state, a state of mind of him. Feels like, yeah, a moment of pure joy. In the, and he, he seems so resistant to that, even having that. Um, I wonder, I feel like this is kind of like the tragedy of being a liberal, of you can't enjoy life because there's always something suffering. Or, you know, kind <laughs> of, it's like if one person's suffering, then I can't mm-hmm. have fun. And I suppose... You know, in this, we kind of see that a lot, especially as a filmmaker who, a documentarian who, you know, his bread and butter is talking about terrible things, tragic things that Mm -hmm. happen to people, but then it's also the Mm -hmm. prestige he gets Mm -hmm. from it. Um, I suppose uh, uh, exploring that part of it, like, is that, again, I suppose it's it's, it's obviously not just you, but it's hard not to see this is like your thoughts. Mm Is that something you've become aware of, especially with journalists that you've met or people within this kind of industry where we we have the, the platform to talk about these things, but often there's kind of a disconnect once the cameras start running, once the interview's over, and then suddenly it goes on to the next thing and you do the next project, that kind of remembering what's left behind. This kind of idea of a person or idea as a position or a political position or like a, a way of life or a perspective of philosophy where you kind of want to help, you want to do these things, mm. but also you kind of want the success and feeling guilty mm. of it. Mm. Uh, you know, have you been a, these kind of people that you've met in your life and in years as well and kind of what you're trying to get into with this kind of idea? Mm-hmm. Is it just about ego or is it you know mm. more than that? No, I think I think in order I I think there is nothing. Uh, I mean, if I understood your question, I think that it was very long and rambling. I'm very sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. But uh, no, no. I, I think when you I think when you are younger and more idealistic, you think that by. So, I mean, I think that obviously you are more sensitive and you can be suffering all the time by the suffering of the world. And I think that will be an endless, an endless and useless uh, state of mind because if you suffer that much. First of all, there is no way you will be helpful at all. <laughs> I mean, you will be just miserable and you will not be effective. You will. So I think the life is bigger than that. And I think if you, I think as human beings, uh, you have to recognize what is uh, in your control or you, what is not in your control. And if you are just basically suffering from, for things that are not in your control, it's like if I'm suffering because a star now in the cosmos is crashing with another star and I say oh my god you know if I'm worried about that when I'm saying there's things that are so bigger than us that I think it's important just to be mindful about the things that really we can contribute we can that but that should not ruin the experience to be alive and to in a way have a huge impact not with the world causes but with the guy that is in front of you with your daughter with you know because that where we (laughs) yes and and i think that's where we really can be uh uh, obviously we can be living in these multiple realities and 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 mindful about things but does not allow ourselves to be miserable by things i think that actually much more narcissistic to think that things depends on your suffering or not i think there's a moment that is important to to separate that, so balance. A, so a, a balance and allow yourself to enjoy. I think you will be stronger to to confront pain later, mm. you know, because if not, it's impossible. 
And I, I don't know if was there a particular colour scheme for each one of the family members? Like well, I noticed the son was always wearing yellow, mm-hmm. and was it the daughter wearing green? Was mm-hmm. there a particular mm-hmm. reason for why you wanted them in specific colours? Well, I think Ana Terrazas did a great job, and we discussed very early about yeah. I, I like in almost in all my films to try to get that, try to get some a colour that makes sense for the character and for what they really represent. So I like to to get that, even when it's very you know, it can be very invisible, but I'm glad that you got it, that you can see that there's there's a color, there's a frequency, a vibe yeah. from each of them, you know. And my final thing, um, you know, one of the things I really like about Jean Renoir's The River is this idea of cycle of life, and I suppose the structure of this is this mm-hmm. fluid motion. And I suppose if there's one thing, and then even the beginning and the end, I love the symmetry of that, and it kind of, you know, this is what it is, transition. But I suppose what's, the, what's your biggest the takeaway you, you hope people might take from, from this film? Is that. I think life start, uh, you, you start as a shadow that comes from the universe that in the womb of your mother and then you arrive there and then when we leave and that's the last migration, we leave you and we are just again another shadow and we don't leave nothing here, we just disintegrate. <laughs> we become dust, literally, and we transform in another energy and that's it, that's what life is. And the middle is life. <laughs> between one shadow and the next one but I think uh, uh, and, and there's a circular if there, there's no structure but yes it's, it, the film can start where it, it, it can begin when it finish and, um, and that's kind of the cycle of life according to the Buddhist tradition and um, so in a way I think there's nothing it's just like I feel that for me this film is, is the truth of a dream which is obviously a contradiction itself but that's how life, in a way, is, right? It's, 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 a, it's kind of have this feeling of an illusion. Uh, sometimes, if you are mindful and you are present, it's very physical and very real, but then suddenly years pass and you feel that nothing has passed, right? So, I mean, yeah. it's, it's very elusive. So yeah. <laughs> that's, what, that's what the film is kind of is about. And obviously cinema, the grand illusion, the greatest format. Of <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank it's you. such a privilege. I loved it. <laughs> Thank you very much. You. Very kind. Good luck with your memoir. That's great. So, Bardo. Um, let's, let's get into... Uh, a lot of people said this is pretentious, right? That's been one of the biggest criticisms to come mm. of it. Pretentious and overlong. Uh, Clarice, was that your assessment? I don't know if I'd say it was pretentious. I've never... I He gets that a lot, and I don't really agree with it. I think he just likes big ideas and <laughs> talking about, like, existential shit and every kind of movie is about... You know, even The Revenant, it was like, should just be a movie about a guy getting attached by a bear. But it was actually about, like connections with nature and and fatherhood and it was really beautiful i think the revenant's a beautiful film and very moving uh i think i liked this a lot but i do think my issue with it is not that it was pretentious or particularly that it was overlong but i think it was it was he was almost putting too much of himself in it and it's like it's very difficult as individual people like we are three million layers right so many conflicted things i mean sure hannah when you're writing your book you were trying to sort out like what are the most essential parts of myself that i need to put in this book 
And I think he put too much in because there were certain things I was like, oh, my God, the stuff about like his identity and and the character going to America. But some people treat that as like a betrayal of Mexico. Like that was so interesting. But then there's all the stuff as well about like the loss of a child. I was like, that's really interesting. But it was all there. And maybe I just have poor attention span. It's like I kept I was like, I want to focus on one thing. Yeah. Pick two or three things and make the movie about that. Mm. I think that's, like, the only real flaw to it. Everything else I like. Amon? I agree with that criticism while also stressing that, for me, it was overlong. And I'm always, as you know, that guy um, who doesn't poo-poo runtimes sight unseen. I like to watch a film, no matter if it's two hours long, three hours long, and then judge whether or not a film was overlong, give the director a chance to justify that runtime. I don't think this film quite does that. I did. It's been a while since I've watched a film where I felt the length like I did watching Bardo. It really felt overlong to mm. me. See, the thing is, when I, how I look at this film is like vignettes, Right. Like, there's, like, mm-hmm. vignettes says set pieces that, in a way, it's not that I don't want all of these things included, but maybe they could have been cut down a little bit. There's a really amazing, and again, some of, and we're going to get into, like, the cinematography of this all and the, the film, because mm-hmm. I will not have a word against this, because it was honestly amazing how it was shot. Yeah. But there's a scene where he's walking down a street in Mexico and people start falling down and then it ends up going on this long route round and he ends up being in this kind of like meets this conquistador from and has a conversation with the history and stuff like that and how it kind of works and that seamlessness. But that took a while. Mm-hmm. And there's sometimes these moments, I think they're kind of like, they're safe, they, they kind of, in the grand scheme, individually, they're kind of great little moments. But then when you add them up, you think, oh, if you could have condensed them a little bit. But for me, the runtime wasn't, that was maybe the only offense of this movie in that I felt, mm. yeah, maybe it could have, and I saw, I think a two hour, 40 minute. I, I saw the reduced cut as well. It did I, not feel reduced. It felt like five hours. Yeah. <laughs> I, but then I was so, I found this again. I am on if it's because of how I was watching it as someone who had <laughs> just written about it. And mm-hmm. a lot of the things that we talk about in the interview, it's just like the idea about identity, about this kind of guilt. You know, there's a really interesting when you look back in your life, um, you know, where have you come from? How did you get to here? I mean, luckily for me, I could like use, I only, you know, I'm not putting myself, I'm putting myself out there, but I can actually, it's not, the film isn't just, uh, the book isn't just about me, it's about movies. And so I could, you know, use that to escape into when I didn't want to really talk about myself. But you're right, Clarice, it's like, it, there's that thing with biographical films. It's like when they want to cover everything, like from birth to death. <laughs> and you're sometimes like, pick a moment, pick a kind of few moments. But I did I, I, the pretentiousness of it. I just think that's really unfair because I, I, it's of course it's going to be self indulgent, and I'd love to talk a little bit about the way he articulated the surrealness of it, and I think that's for me really powerful. The way that these kind of it felt like this film was a circle, um, and that's kind of the circle of life, of life. right? And it moves us all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but it does that the way that the way it's shot from the ending and in between there is this, and I think that's what Alejandro is really good at is the fluidity of his storytelling. You know, there's definitely a lot of Birdman that came through in this as well, 
Um, what did you think about how he used literal metaphors but married it with like reality and this kind of abstract surrealness as well Clarice yeah I think it's it's the movie would have been incomprehensible if it weren't for like the power of individual metaphors because I think when I I saw this movie quite a long time ago and when I think about it I do just think about the individual images like him climbing the pile of, of bodies to meet Cortez at the top like it's you don't almost don't really need to pay attention to the dialogue that they have when he gets to the top because everything that Inarito needed to say is in that image and I think that happens again and again and again over the movie like there's a thing where he he meets his dad and you know and it's all dream logic and I think as you said the Birdman the kind of these long meandering takes it has a dream logic to it because I think that's at least how my dreams work I'm just kind of like yeah you know when spaces fuse into each other and it's like i'm on a train but now suddenly i'm in a room but also you don't, don't know, know the start and the beginning yeah worked. yeah you know you exactly. don't know the beginning of the thing also i realize they call it docufiction it's autofiction <laughs> uh what this is yeah i was yeah. gonna ask because i was like oh it's part of it like real shit no i realized i just got it wrong <laughs> okay. so forgive me yeah. yeah yeah we should probably mention the cinematographer's name by the way darius Conji, who does incredible yeah. work some of those long takes, I mean, they're just as immersive as anything in the way of water without the use of 3D and high frame rate. They're just <laughs> that great. And when they had that propulsion and that storytelling behind them, as we do get in some of those big nets, as you say, Hannah, then the film really sings to me. Um, but there's some stuff where the camera is much more static and it feels a bit empty. In some big nets, not all of them, but in some. And then there's other stuff it's, which happens. It's, it's vignettes. Like, you don't uh, pronounce the G. Son, <laughs> big, big nets. Vignettes. Oh, that much. Vignettes. Vignettes. Yeah. Vignettes. Melancholy. Melancholy. <laughs> it's, it's melancholy. melancholy um, <laughs> it's vignettes, Alman. Um, <laughs> um, what? Here's a question. What did you think of the CG baby? Can, can we talk about the CG baby because that was weird? No, right? no, but I love it. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. I, I loved all sad. the CG and the way it was used. I found it heartbreaking, tragic. Mm. There was also just so many moments where, like, you know, you mentioned the stuff with his dad where he's talking, and in the, this moment he plays, like, he's basically the, the actor's face on, like, a tiny, like, a child's body. And mm. even that didn't take like, me uh, out. Like Colin Robinson and what we do in the show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just, like, I just, I just was so deeply moved by it. Um, in so many ways, but also kind of ent- entertained. There was moments that, I mean, and also just like set pieces. That one of the, mo- the most the most memorable scene. I mean, there's so many memorable moments in this, but like there's a scene where they're in this, again, the production design list, sensational. They're in a Mexican club and there's a scene to David Bowie, but then you get this mm-hmm. interest, internal kind of, you're in that room, you have this dance sequence with all these people, and then you go to the main character, and then suddenly all you're hearing it is like in his head. Alejandro Di Inarutu, please make do a musical. You absolutely understand mm-hmm. how to shoot, where it takes you inside into that world where you go from the external to the internal. And I was just, ah, oh, I was just, I had a smile on my face. I was like, that's just, it made me feel something. There were moments definitely I felt really just like, quite upset and sad but also moved by it i don't know did you guys 
there were definitely moments, but there were fewer and farther between for me than I think they were for you. But some of the stuff that the film gets into, like the, the, the conversation with his father in the bathroom that you mentioned, that stuck out to me. There's a line, I think, success has been my biggest failure. And there's a lot of dialogue pertaining to that sort of theme in terms of how far he's climbed and if he's able to enjoy it and how much he should enjoy it before getting back to it. All that sort of stuff is really, really interesting. And I was really into that. But there's a lot of stuff that just felt a little bit boring to me, a little bit static uh, with the filmmaking as well. So overall, for me, this was a film that I admired more than I actively liked Mm -hmm. as I was watching it. I thought some of the simple stuff was really moving as well. I, the scene that kind of surprisingly got me was where he's got, oh, what are they called? The little lizards. The, yeah. The, the little gecko-y things. And he's got a bag of them on on the metro and it bursts in there and they're all in the water and you just kind of know they're going to die and everyone's just standing around being like, uh. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's really, I found that so sad and I think, I think it's, it's this thing that Inaritu's always been so good at is like the story behind the event and he can show something that straightforward and that seemingly meaningless but as a viewer you're like oh oh my god you know it was really sad when that bear attacked Leonardo DiCaprio I felt really Mm -hmm. sad for the bear yeah and (laughs) and it's funny I I, you know I I actually you know I think you said earlier it's like it was too personal for me I just thought it was just so like remarkable how vulnerable and of course he's doing it through like a character that's true I just what he talks about in it like it felt so cathartic for I'm sure it was for him to just get it out there and just be able to like and I'm sure, again, I don't even think he enjoyed talking about the film with me because, you know, like the David Lynch thing, it's like the talking is the film, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> were there anything else you noticed? You know, we've obviously we've talked a lot about the story, the kind of cinematography, production design, all that, but what about like the act, individual actors' performances? Um, was there anything that kind of stood out yeah. for you? Uh, I, do, I, I thought Daniel jimenez Gacho was fantastic. <laughs> I do find it, and apparently... Uh, Interview 2 did not notice this, but he looks very similar to Interview 2 in addition to being a sort of semi-standard for Interview 2, um, which is funny to me. Um, but but yeah, no, I thought I thought he was great and really uh, carried the film. He had to, and he did a really good job of it. Yeah, it's hard to, like, I'm trying to think through all the performances, and I think partially because it's so centred, yeah, around him, it's everyone else, like, everyone else is sort of serving the centre. <laughs> In a weird way. So all the performances are good, but they're all like in service of this one man's journey. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think that's that's ultimately what I what I did find moving about it is that I think even though maybe I didn't necessarily get a huge amount out of it for me and my life and my thoughts, but I found it moving to see somebody working through somebody something. I found it moving to see somebody work through something in such a raw kind of like unprocessed way of like here is all of my shit and it like it didn't make it a perfect movie and I yeah do wish he'd just like maybe refined it but then maybe it wouldn't have been as artist if he if he Mm. had sat and refined everything and overthought it uh it's a tricky thing Mm. but I'm glad he did it not only that but not only that but this isn't we touched this is not a film that follows the filmmaking rules of act one act two act three it just does its own thing all the way through and as you said like you don't know where the beginning and the end is um which is very risky and very bold um 
and works in part. But again, this is a film that I admired more than I liked just for me. Why pay for therapy when you can just get Netflix to give you like a few million dollars? <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's had therapy. <laughs> no, I'm sure. Uh, you know what? In a way, it's like, you know. I, I don't know why. It also reminds me of like, you know, have you ever read Rules of Attraction by Brett Easton Ellis? The way it just starts halfway through a sentence, which I always thought was quite mm, great. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think exactly what you said, Clarice, like this dream-like way of navigating this world. It's memories. Memories are fallible. And we, like, where we see something is going to be very different. It clouds our judgment. So I like the fact that it's really also acknowledging it's an unreliable narrator. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, when you're on Google Maps and you pick up the little yellow person and then you drop it and then you're suddenly just on a street and you're like, I don't know what the fuck's happening I'm here. <laughs> That's Bardo. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, let's, uh, let's do our little vote. So Bardo is on Netflix now. Yes. Great. Yeah, yeah. Now, no. so, uh, Amon, stream or skip? It's a stream for me. Uh, I've got caveats. I don't quite dig it as much as you two do, but there is uh, stuff of value here. Um, and when you have the pause button, um, <laughs> which you might need to use, given this is a three-hour film, um, then I think you have... Uh, it's not a three-hour film. It's two hours, 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Clarice. Okay, publicist Alejandro. No, I'm joking. I will. I will. I, I'm literally will be his stand, biggest cheerleader. I love him. Okay, Clarice. Yeah, I think it's slightly weird that it's being released now because nothing about it is Christmassy and it feels like the wrong time of year to watch it because it's. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have those feelings over Christmas. I think Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe I've... you know what i think it'd be a perfect new year's film new year's yeah because it is so self-reflective yeah. if you're one of the people kind of people who gets very self-reflective on new year's watch bardo i don't know what you new mean year's christmas effect. time is also always about existential crisis end of the year it's like oh <laughs> uh obviously yeah. obviously a massive stream from me masterpiece fucking loved it literally Go on, Alejandro. How? What? 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 Where is this on your films of the year? I haven't even thought about my. Th- I haven't even thought about it. Wow, but it's on my top ten. Maybe it's time to think about it now. <laughs> oh, because look at me doing the segue. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, yes, because ladies and gentlemen, it is time for our final. <sighs> Sorry, I went really long on that one. Of 2022. Uh, Yes, we have come to it. The end of the year already? How have these 12 months passed? Um, But yeah, we've had blockbusters, we've had indies, we've had everything in between. Um, Yeah, cinema has had ups and downs this year in a major way. But how are you feeling about the year in film? And... What are some, well, I'm going to start with that general question before we get specific. How, how are we feeling about the year in film in general, Clarice? Good. I mean, I feel like I never, I don't understand when people are like, this wasn't a good year in film. Because I just feel like maybe you didn't watch enough films. Mm. Films are good. <laughs> and a lot of them come out every year. So I find it really hard to believe that people can't find like 10 movies that they loved out of the three bazillion movies that came out this year. (laughs) So I loved it. And there are some movies that really moved me this year and changed my perspective on things. And also films that I had a lot of fun with. 
And some good TV shows as well. I watched a lot more TV yeah. this year. <laughs> but you still have not caught up on the best show of the year, which is mind-boggling to me. <laughs> because I don't want to rush it, because it is the best TV show of the year, and I don't want to oh, rush it. It's gosh. special. I'm speaking about Andor, by the way, listeners. Um, Hannah. You know, it's like what they say about sex. You like with virginity, you don't want to like rush into it. You got to wait for the right moment. Oh no! <laughs> I was like, Andor. I'm ready to go. Let's break this time. <laughs> if you want the details on what Hannah is talking about, you can pick up strong female character in either book or audio form. Maybe it's better um, in audio book form. This is a mon- woman, <laughs> Hannah Plus publicist speaking. Thank you so much, Mom. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with you, Clarice. There are so many movies coming out every year. I just don't think, I I mean, God, it's one thing to like rate the movies of the year, then also rate the year in film. Like who has the time? Who has the energy? I've had a great year of cinema and it feels great to be back in cinemas. You know, it feels great to have Mm -hmm. the big screen experience. Um, So yeah, no, there's been, it's all right, Tom Cruise. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sorry. I am. I am Nicole Kidman for the AMC adverts. (laughs) With, with that He's being said, in a said, place like this, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with, with that being said, how are we feeling about some of the things that we've seen from studios like a Warner Brothers, like a HBO Max, in terms of how they're treating the artists and how, in terms of how they're treating art um, as content, and just in some places removing them from the internet entirely and from the world because. Uh, physical copies of some of the stuff that they're doing are, are no longer uh, sort of being made. Um, so how, how are we feeling about that going into 2023? S- s- sucks. Sucks. Also, union. Honestly, that's what <laughs> I feel like. That's my biggest yeah. takeaway from like, there needs to be more unionization in the entertainment world because people are getting fucking taken mm-hmm. for granted, um, just overworked and all that. And also, I will say this on the studio front. I am not getting, I'm not, I'm getting fatigued, but when I hear more about the VFX stuff and when we think about, it does make me think we need to, you need to chill your boots. You need to cool your boots a bit and like slow down, um, spend a bit more time to actually really do good stories. Cause I don't know. I think some of the stuff we've seen from studios have been really disappointing. Not really disappointed, but just well, not as whelming. <laughs> I've been whelmed. Yeah. Well, I, th- yeah, well, I think you know, I agree. And on that note, we should probably talk about the year in, I guess, superhero Um that, that That is the big thing uh, in cinemas and pop culture still. Um, and the MCU, this phase four this year, this has been, I think in, in recent times, that, that there's been one or two that, that have made it into my top ten. And, and I think one year where no sort of super film made it into the top ten. Um, in, ter- in terms of Marvel, like there's been no film in Phase Four that makes that has cracked my top ten. I think we kind of have a might cl- might crack my top twenty, um, but I I'm, I haven't been sort of all the way disappointed. I would just use the word middling to describe Phase Four as a whole. It's been very very up and down in a way that Phase Three was not, um, and I'm hopeful now that we've gotten through some of the transitional stuff in terms of the wider storytelling arc that they're trying to do across phase four, five, and six, that the 2023 and beyond Marvel is going to be a bit better in terms of quality. I think even they will acknowledge that it's been a lot of quantity over quality uh, these last couple of years, and maybe they're reassessing, given the 
mixed reaction, more mixed than they are used to, I think, um, to some of their projects. Um, so what, what, what's your take on Marvel and I guess the why the world of superheroes on film and in TV in 2022? I, just, I think the TV has for the win, for sure. Miss Marvel mm-hmm. was amazing. I loved it. Um, the Boys as a series... I, I think it's kind of like got to the point where it's like it was parody, but now it also just feels like, oh, this just feels real. But I have I still have a lot of fun with it. Mm-hmm. It's hard as well. So I'm thinking, what else came out this year? Um, uh, I think Clarice will be able to help you out with that. Oh, Peacemaker, Clarice. obviously. Yeah, there we go. So I definitely <laughs> think TV has a jump. But, but like, you know, you know suicide, the Suicide Squad was great. Love that. Mm-hmm. That was really, that was really... Was that this year? That? It was, no, it was last oh. year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right, though. I definitely feel like there hasn't... Like, I feel like I'm susceptible to any superhero content because or Marvel stuff because I'm such a little... Love it. Um, but it definitely doesn't feel... Just getting all those Disney checks, aren't you? I did really enjoy... That, I have to say, <laughs> I did think Wakanda Forever was amazing. I really loved it. I, I felt... Just okay. because also it was... Um, it managed to have the emotion and have a really dramatic storyline that felt mm. real rather than superhero mm-hmm. world real. It felt like this is a real mm-hmm. grief and loss. And of course, superhero films are all about grief and loss, but it wasn't played for laughs, you know? Like, And that's because of yeah. this, the tone of this, this film, right? Because obviously Thor is yeah. all about grief. He's constantly losing it, but because of the na- nature of that, tonally what that world is he uses there's a lot of humor and that's fine a lot of people use humor to kind of deal with grief that's that's fine Mm. so i I really i did really love black cat panther kind of forever and of course you know yeah Yeah. there are things (laughs) there are things in wakanda forever that i'm critical of um but it's still a film that i really really like i think it's the best film of phase four but my best film watching experience of Phase 4 is still No Way Home um, for, for <laughs> coming out of that cinema on that night. I was bouncing. Um, but kind of forever, I think it's the best film. The thing that I've been saying is that given everything that Ryan Coogler and everyone working on that film were dealing with, the fact that that film works on any level, let alone as well as it does, is a miracle. Um, and yes, we are critics and we will do the critical job, etc. But that's something which I think needs to be said. Um, Ryan Coogler, it takes a really special guy to lead that cast, that crew, that production through that time and land that plane in a satisfying way. Um, the fact that he's only made four movies and has changed the culture with those movies the way he has, it's really, it's not something that happens very often. He's a very special dude. Um, but that leads me on to sort of, oh, sorry, please. I, Can I... I well, can I say, I for my top movies of the year, I think it's been a really great year for studio, non-franchise studio films. I mean, they haven't all done well at the box office, but I liked them and that's what's important. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> to have everything, everywhere, all at once, obviously did yes. do really well at the box office and was fantastic and I think has really resonated with yeah. people. That was awesome to see. Uh, I think... Also, the Northman. I know did not do well. Ah, oh, the Northman. Right. Ah. The Northman remembers. <laughs> that was my. And also yeah. Elvis as well, which was not Elvis was a pretty big movie, and I thought that was incredible. Um, and if Austin Butler well does not get an Oscar nomination. Office? There's something very wrong. 
Yeah, so I think it's been a good year for... And Nope, and Nope as well was incredible. Mm -hmm. I think it's been a great year for, like, big movies. The Woman King. Original stories. The Woman King was amazing Mm -hmm. as well. Um, I think that's worth talking about. Mr. Malcolm's List. That's what I mean. That's what I'm saying. I've actually feel that outside of that sort of, you know, remake genre franchise world, there has been some really great stuff. I, I've had so much fun with it, but also there's been smaller ones like, I think it came out this year, Playground. Do you remember that one? That yes. French movie, yeah. uh, which was just so beautiful, like really just like viscerally upsetting in so many ways, but so mm-hmm. beautiful. See, um, there's so many, yeah. I mean, Decision to Leave. Yay. That there's was also, amazing. It's also Kimmy, the new Soderbergh. Really enjoyed that. That was great. I really yeah. enjoyed that as well. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think now. I know, that's yeah. just me. <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, no, you know what? It has a really great score by Howard Shaw, and I really enjoyed talking to him for the Fate of Black podcast a few weeks ago. Um, Cow, but yeah, we're, we're... Andrew Arnold, great year for documentaries mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. yeah. Neptune Frost. Um, Memoria. Yes. It's been a yeah. great year. What are people... People need to stop saying it's been a the bad year. The Banshees of Inner Sheeran. Yes. That was a great film. Really great film. Um, so many good... Yeah, so many great smile. Love that was actually really fun. I gave that three. I'm stars like looking at the list now of films that came out this year, and I'm like, what did I like? I was just gonna say, I think like the one overarching thing, and we talked about this in Bardo, is that I guess because people were in, directors were in lockdown, they had a lot of time to think. Like the films that came mm. out this year have been very self-reflective, um, often semi-autobiographical, but like Armageddon Time, I love it, but I appreciate James Gray. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, White Noise, um, which I that know you guys I didn't love. Like. <laughs> Bardo. Um, I haven't seen The Fablemans yet, but that's kind of nice. No, I haven't. Uh, Boiling Point, Jackass Love Forever. Boiling Point. Oh, yeah, it was love Boiling Point. Point. Pray, Pray. Oh, my gosh. We had a great Thunder, fucking year. Born Star. I can't wait to see what she does next. Um, yeah. In terms of my film of the year, like, I'll give you my top five real quick. So it's one, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Two, Top Gun Maverick. Uh, three glass onion, four turning red. I think five was banshees, or tied with, I tied the banshees or good luck to you, Leo Grand, which is I thought incredible. Yeah, good luck to you, Leo Grand. I want to name a few animated ones though. Turning yeah. red was great. Love that one. I really love Belle, which was like an anime yes. kind of remake, which is like of the Beauty and the Beast story. That was just mm. sensational. Of course, you got to talk about Pinocchio, Guillermo del Toro's. That was just amazingly done. I just there's it's been so exciting really hasn't it um mm-hmm. you know in other ways um you know there was hit the road the Iranian mm-hmm. Iranian film there's been great Iranian films this year with you know Holy Spider as well I don't know if it's been out in the UK yet Holy Spider um but yeah I think there's been stuff all over the place from all over the world um that have been really worth our time so yeah I feel like cinema's back baby <laughs> indeed I'm going to just run through a couple of my best etc. And then you guys can jump in if anything springs to mind. Uh, best trailer for me. The first trailer for Wakanda Forever is a sublime piece of art that made me cry at like 3 a.m. That morning it dropped. I thought it was incredible. Um, best new the, character. The Barbie was, was, trailer. I only saw 10 <laughs> seconds of they, it without sound on Twitter, but it was the most glorious 10 seconds of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing the full Barbie trailer 
very, very soon. Um, best new character in the MCU is obviously Madison uh, from Knight. She-Hulk. No. <laughs> Wait, what did you... <laughs> Not Moon Knight, it's Madison. I'm sorry. Madison came in, stole the show, did her damn thing. What, 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 where's, yeah. where's, where's, where's that tips? <laughs> no, I love that. Um, Incorrect. <laughs> best... Actually inaccurate. <laughs> best score... Michael Michael Giacchino, the Batman. Um, I think that is going to take... Although the best track from a score this year, um, Michael Abel's Nope from Nope. Uh, it's the final track on the score. Yes, final that was maybe my favourite score. I thought it was yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Um, best costume design, Clarice. Anything spring to mind? Oh, shit. Um, oh, it's <laughs> really hard. There was a lot of really good... Probably Elvis, Catherine Martin's work on Elvis. Those pink suits... Mm. <laughs> my god <laughs> do you have any best Hannah that's bringing to mind everyone's best <laughs> best podcast fade to black podcast of course also great has been getting to spend time with you guys uh, every week uh, talking about the films talk about the TV shows talk about life um, and I look forward to doing that a lot more with you in 2023 and beyond uh, mm. but for now and also, Stranger uh, Things came out this year. And also, Stranger Things came out this year. It's the best TV <laughs> show! <laughs> Says the person who hasn't finished Andor yet, calm yourself until you watch Andor and then say that Andor's the best TV show. I like Stranger Things, but my, kill some people. That's, that's, that's my uh, Somebody did die and it was very upsetting. Oh, Thank you goodness. very much. <laughs> kill some more significant people. Stranger Don't call Things. Him is again. That's rude. <laughs> He died Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners as we sign off for the final time in 2022? Be no? good to each other. I'm <laughs> <laughs> doing the ET hand. <laughs> Let the record deflect. Um, we'll be back as a team on January the 8th, but we will have a surprise for you this side of the year because we have an interview special coming up uh, next week with the one, the only, Mr. Daredevil himself, Charlie Cox. Um, got to spend a little bit of time with him talking about his new show, Treason. I, of course, asked about Daredevil as well, and we had a really, really fun chat. So look out, look out for that interview special. Uh, coming in the, look out for that interview special in the coming days as our final Christmas present to you. Um, but on that note, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. We will see you on the flip side. Uh, my name on the, uh, yeah. is, and, yeah, is I, Iron Man. <laughs> I am Iron Man. Um, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, uh, and we will see you on the flip side. Thank you for tuning in and happy viewing via whatever medium is the safest for you. Subscribe, rate, review, share, like, do all of the things because it makes a difference. And tweet us any questions or hot takes at Fade to Black Pod on Twitter. Uh, and yeah, we'll see you in 2023. My name is Amon Woman, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Amon Woman. I'm at Clarice Lou on Twitter and at Clarice Lockery on Instagram. I'm at Hannah Flint on Twitter, <laughs> at Hannah Ness Flint on Instagram, <laughs> and on nothing else. <laughs> For now. For now. Who knows if Twitter will still be a thing by the time you return in 2023? You just don't know. But on that note, farewell, film friends. It's time to fade to black. Mm-hmm.